Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and of course we got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and challenge the status quo that always needs challenging. Uh, but don't forget, first, like, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. If you're going to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, make it something funny or saucy. That's all we request. Either you one-star us and you roast us, or you five-star us and call us all sorts of fancy names like the, I don't know, the exuberant will hess or the illustrious brian Bodie, like we we would like those types of adjectives if you're giving us five stars if not then i expect to be roasted properly anyway um otherwise uh if you'd like to support us support us on the church split uh patreon uh link down below and that way you can support this channel and all the expenses thereof and we do plan to be releasing patreon only content here in the near-ish future um just got some things we got to work out before we start doing that but anyway today we have a special guest with us and one of the coolest parts probably about doing the church split and things like this is the cool people we get to meet along the way definitely and some people think it's like, oh, so that means like people with other platforms. And even though that's true, like we do have friends with, with people who do have platforms, but we come up with friends who don't have platforms necessarily, but just become good friends that we kind of just, in a sense, if we can use the term, vibe with. Uh, so this, what You're we such have, a millennial. Oh it, whatever, man. Like <laughs> we're on YouTube, okay? We are definitely millennials and that's on true. TikTok. That's so true. I'm like quasi Gen Z then at that point. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we have a good friend on, uh, her name is Julie Sigler, and she's coming on to tell her story a little bit of, about her background, some of the things that she went through. I'm actually really excited to talk about some of these topics because we've talked about these topics um, at length in other episodes of different people, but we haven't talked about these issues necessarily from a lot of like a woman's perspective on some of these issues. So I'm actually really excited about this. Uh, she's part of the Church Split Apologetics and Discussion Group on Facebook. So if you guys want to interact with any of us there, you just go to Facebook, join our the Church Split Apologetics and discussion. Uh, also answer the questions so that way our admins for sure let you in. If you don't answer, we will the question, deny you. Yeah, we have we have some deny happy admins, and that's okay. We'd rather have people who, and you don't have to answer them like a certain way. We just want them answered so we know you're not a bot or something. But anyway, uh, with that being said, uh, Julie, welcome on to the channel. How are you doing tonight? I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't be nervous. We're just a bunch of idiots. So you're good. You'll hey, be the hey, best. Speak for yourself. You just called me illustrious like five seconds ago. No, uh, it was this hyperbolic. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to give you some like encouragement and self-esteem you. that your mother never gave Feed you. Feed the ego. I'll take it. Okay. Uh, so anyway, um, I know you've listened to you've listened to the church split for a while. We've been we've uh, you and your husband. We've kind of chatted like throughout the last couple of years and it's been a really good fun relationship so what i but you were raised i know at a similar background to my own but you've i know you've experienced some unique things along the way so first off could you tell everyone just a little bit about yourself like where you're at now you know married kids things like that just a little bit about you okay um so where I'm at now or like where I came from? Oh, it's just where you're at now. It's like, you know, okay. are you married? Do you have kids? Things like that. So, Why should people uh, care about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, right now I'm uh, married with three children. I, I stay at home mom and I homeschool my kids. And um, so very much the traditional wife and mother. Um, and I absolutely love what I do. Um, I, I really do. <laughs> um, I'm in a Southern Baptist church now, which is a big milestone from where I've come from. 
Sounds like heresy to me, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, that's what my pastor said when I first joined. He's like, oh, so this is like a heretic church for you. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he knows, he knows. <laughs> um, you you got to know. But, but really, the over the last two years, the Lord's done a lot of um, healing in my life. Um, I came to a place of just just brokenness um, about two years ago um, after leaving the IFB and my former church. Um, a lot of struggle there. And then just two months after I left there, uh, my father died. And um, so just just absolute brokenness. I mean, no, no community really. And I just, I didn't know my dad's death brought up a lot of past hurt, things that I had never really faced in my life, had never addressed in my life. Um, a lot of hurt and abuse that I pretended hadn't happened. And when he was gone, I just, I had, it all just kind of came crashing around me. And uh, there was, there was just a time that I really needed to do a lot of healing. And I would call it reconstructing um, because I didn't want to deconstruct. I never questioned whether God was real. I didn't want to leave my faith, but um, I had to realign my vision of who God was and who I was and what my purpose was and all of that. I mean, I had to find my value um, because I was finding it in all the right, wrong places and I didn't even realize it. But um, really the church split has been super helpful to me in that area too. While I don't listen to all two hours of every episode. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, my husband does listen pretty regularly and he often will tell me the highlights or he'll say, you've got to listen to this particular episode or get to the 45 minute mark or something and I'll listen to. <laughs> That's when it usually starts is at the 45 minute mark actually. <laughs> yeah, because we just talked too much at the beginning. Everyone's like, mm, keep fast forwarding. All right, now content. <laughs> right. But it's really helped me a lot in um, just just kind of like learning to um, kind of just look at my faith in a healthy way. So your podcast has really been helpful to me in that. Um, and just the apologetics group, too, because it allows me to have a safe place to kind of explore questions and doubts and uh, just all of that. It's been really helpful to me. Well, that's awesome. I mean, that's kind of why we originally started the program was just like, well, what if people have questions about some basic things? What if we can just do originally it was going to be like 15, 20 minute videos of just like quick overviews on topics. And then it turned into like, well, I don't feel like we can really we're properly like digging at some of these things. Yeah. Um, and that, that like, and I realized also Christian channels were a dime a dozen that attempted to do that same thing because there's only the same bullet points for every single point. I'm like, well, we should probably explore those deeper concepts. So that's kind of what birthed our one to two hour episodes was just um, was that was just this whole like, OK, well, let's just really dig into it. So sometimes and I always tell people like, I know everyone else is like, well, I always try to keep mine within an hour, which it would be good for us to do eventually, I think. But sometimes it's also like, well, that's also not the format we are always going to go with because we also feel like it's worth the time to yeah. take the time to listen. So I think that's really good. So I'm glad it's been helpful for you. That's the whole point. Um, and so I'm, and also I would, you know, you have been through a lot and like yourself, I also had to reconstruct. Um, I think Brian's had to reconstruct in his own yeah. ways. Right. And I love that's the word that you chose, Julie, because it's not just like, I'm just walking away from the faith. It's like, no, I got some foundational problems here that I need to fix. There are some things that I've been taught that are probably wrong. I need to reevaluate from the ground up and rebuild on a good foundation so that I have a closer walk with God and I can understand and interact with people better and I have a better testimony. So mm -hmm. I love that you use that word. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Julie, can you tell a, a little bit? So you mentioned some like past hurts and stuff and things that you know you dealt with growing up. So could you just kind of tell us about you from kind of from the ground up? From like, what was it like growing up? What was your household like? I know you grew up in the IFP, and for those who don't know, that's short for Independent Fundamental Baptist. They tend to be King James only. They tend to be very strict, and um, a lot of people use the term legalistic to help describe it. Uh, if you're familiar with like Pentecostal holiness groups and stuff like that, you kind of think of that level. Um, so yeah, can you just tell a little bit about your background and what it was like growing up? Yes. Um, so my parents met at uh, Hiles Anderson College. So um, a lot of influence from Hiles Anderson and from Jack Hiles was deeply uh, a part of my family and upbringing. Um, my dad was saved um, older as a teenager and kind of went directly into the arms of the IFB from uh, his own very sad childhood things that happened to him and I think he kind of loved the structure that it offered um, the idea that maybe he could do better for his family than what he had um, kind of fell into all those rules felt like a real safety net for him and uh, so when I was born I was born at Crown Point Indiana right there at First Baptist Church I was there just a couple weeks after I was born or whatever in the nursery <laughs> <laughs> um, so I lived there and my dad had several different jobs uh, that I remember moving around a little bit my early, early childhood, um, Christian school, uh, associate pastor, bus director, different things like that. Um, we finally settled in Michigan um, when I was about almost five, um, about four and a half, somewhere around there. And I started kindergarten. My dad was a Christian school um, teacher. And uh, it wasn't too long after we moved there that the first kind of tragedy in my life that I remember um, happened and I was about four years old and I don't really remember the whole situation obviously because I, I was uh, young but uh, but um, I do remember that my parents separated for six months um, at that point and um, remember my first plane ride and I came to live in Texas and uh, I didn't really understand why uh, I was too little but I do remember that I, uh, mom and dad weren't together and I didn't understand and then a few months later, six months later, we came back to Michigan and we just kind of pretended like that never happened. There was never any explanation. I never understood. Um, I came to understand later as an, a teenager, an adult, actually, that um, it was because my dad had had an affair or that's the gentle word. But um, really, he had groomed a teenage girl at that church um, where he was a school teacher and, um, you know, waited until she was 18, of course, for legal purposes, but had been unfaithful and uh, that that was kind of the beginning for me. <laughs> but um, mm. yeah, so shortly after moving back to Michigan to be with reconciled with my dad, my mom reconciled with my dad, um, they, of course, were no longer at that church. And we joined up with another church and uh, he would begin a kind of a brief stint out of the ministry where he would get his criminal justice degree. And uh, during that time, I was saved. So I was four and a half, um, almost five. I was almost five. Um, and uh, my parents would have me pray a little prayer. And I'm sure you've heard it. <laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I would pray that every single night. And I remember that night thinking, if I die before I wake. And I was like super scared. <laughs> I laid awake in bed, terrified that I didn't realize that little kids could die. And so that really kept me awake. I would not fall asleep that night um, because mm -hmm. it was a Wednesday 
And that Wednesday at my new church, the pastor um, preached a sermon on hell. And uh, he went into great detail about the burning and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of the terror um, and nightmare that hell, hellfire would be and how all of the sinners would go there if they die without Jesus. And so that's what was going through my little anxious mind at almost five years old was I cannot fall asleep because I could die in my sleep. And if I die, I will go to hell. And so um, I came up with like a typical child, every excuse in the book to not fall asleep. Daddy, I need a drink of water. Daddy, I, I'm scared. Or daddy, I, whatever, you know, everything, my back itches, you know, you name it. I kept coming up with something. <laughs> and finally, you know, he's like, after like five times, it, it happened to be my dad's birthday. So he was very gracious that night with me. And he was like, what is going on with you? You need to go to bed. And uh, I finally just broke down crying and said, I can't, I don't want to die. I want to go to hell. And so he took me on his knee and he showed me the Romans road and I received Christ as my savior, really out of fear. But um, I did recognize even that young that I, I was a sinner and I knew that I wanted to not go to hell. That was really the basics of it for me. Um, but I do know that I trusted Jesus um, at that point in my life. Um, but there would be so much doubt through my life after that, um, you know, with IFB type sermons and the hellfire and the and the the anxious seat that you'd get from the Charles Finney type uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, stuff. And so there was a lot. I was very sen- I'm still a pretty sensitive person, and so that kind of preaching really pulls on the emotions, a lot of emotional manipulation. And I was very susceptible to that. Uh, So would have a lot of reassurances through the years. But um, anyway, um, eventually, um, you know, growing up was, eventually I got into, my dad started a, he was hired on as a associate pastor at that church that we were at, which looking back to me now, I'm shocked because they knew, they knew what he had done. And they chose to hire him anyway. Not only did they choose to hire him, they chose to let him start a Christian school. And uh, so, yeah. So he started a Christian school. I was in the fifth grade that year. And uh, it was was amazing. It was probably the best years of my life because he was a different, he was different when he was public like that. Like he was um, more funny. He was gracious. He was charismatic. Um, all those things when he was in the classroom, and so he was the public. He was the teacher, and he was my teacher. He was the principal. We started out as twelve kids in a one-room schoolhouse, <laughs> kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. So wow. my my dad taught all the grades, first grade through twelfth, and uh, he loved it. He really did. He he really shined during that time. Uh, but um, I I just I really enjoyed him then. Like he wasn't the same though when we were at home. And every once in a while at school, he would pop through like somebody, I would do something that would disappoint him or one of my brothers would maybe not pass a test or something. And you would see dad come out and he would forget to wear his teacher hat, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. and he would uh, kind of lay into us or uh, embarrass us in front of our friends or haul us off to spank us or something like that. But like, for the most part, it was really great. But I didn't know was that during that time, um, he was having... Uh, the beginnings of an affair with a lady um, who was my best friend's mom. And uh, I didn't know that until years, like a couple years later. But I think my mom came to recognize the signs. She confronted him several times. And when I was 13, dad decided that the answer to all of our problems would be for him to leave that church and go be a senior pastor somewhere. And so I I don't know. (laughs) Wow. but this is how it's done in the IFB. You just keep passing that trash around. You just keep covering it up. You keep pretending it didn't happen. And us kids, 
I mean, we would know things were going wrong, but we didn't know. We didn't talk about problems. We didn't talk about what was going on. We just knew that there was arguing or that that mom won't hold dad's hand or just that dad said mean things to mom or that he left the house, you know, and drove off and packed a suitcase, but we didn't know where he went or when he would come back or these things would happen at home, but we didn't talk about them at church. At church, my dad sang and smiled and he led the music and led the choir. And and on Monday through Friday, he was the Christian school teacher and he was funny and he was smart and he taught Bible class and all these things. But then at home, it was different. And uh, he was harsh and often cruel with his words. And uh, he spanked to the point where it wasn't spanking anymore. Um, he ridiculed people behind their backs, you know, people at the church, the pastor, uh, just the different kids in the classroom, things like that. He wouldn't do that to their faces, but he would do it at home. Um, so it was, it was hard because it's like sometimes I would just pretend that that didn't happen so that I could go to school and pretend like everything was fine. And I loved the lie. I loved living in that little lie does that make sense like <laughs> absolutely well yeah. i mean i i mean similar like you can I, relate to that <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say like everything you're saying i'm like absolutely uh because we say thing you know my church that my everything was pretty and you know the smiley happy crap now you got me and i will say it. shiny happy shiny people. happy people i can't remember the name of that stupid show so. he always gets <laughs> now i got around, it in your head now you got me turned around <laughs> i was correcting you for months Yep. Now here we are. I, I've ruined I, your brain. I have become like you. Um, so, but yeah, same thing. Where and I experienced that too. Where it was like, but at home was totally different. And I liked the lie, same as. And I think also the reason why that. I, and the, the same thing happened to my wife's family with a lot of things that weren't talked about. And I think because if you talk about it, it becomes real. And because it's ugly, it's gross. And again, they want to, the the IFP has a side that they desire a, a very posh appearance well then it does not allow for such heinous things so we have to pretend it's not happening and move past it quickly otherwise well if we confront it and we take a minute to stare down the abyss it will it could devour us right so they just avoid it and little exactly do they yeah, yeah. Other, a real little do they realize it just gets worse but anyway keep going i'm sorry right because i would i would i would continue to bury that until i believed the lie i i for many years, I would tell my testimony and say, oh, I was given a goodly heritage. I was raised in a Christian home. And I, I said the things that made me, the, the things that everybody wanted to hear. And uh, I honestly was afraid to say anything else because I was afraid of my dad's blowback, you know, what he would say if I ever spoke of anything. We just never talked about it, ever. And uh, when we moved away, when I was 13, oh, well, first he was really picky about like what church he wanted to be in. So we did this candidating all over the U.S. And I don't know what that was about. I don't know if he was looking for a certain kind of position or if he just liked the the fun of being the new guy at a new church every Sunday and getting the to go out to eat and get the interviews and show off his family. And we would all be shiny and we'd sing songs and just all the stuff. And we were all the things there, you know, <laughs> he'd parade us kids up there and <laughs> we would sing and uh, just, I don't know, it was, it was weird. And uh, he would give us um, all these instructions on how to eat and how not to talk and what to say and just all this stuff, you know, and it was all so fake. Um, but we did it and we loved it, honestly, because it was living the lie. And uh, anyway, it was a happy lie. So we enjoyed that. But <laughs> six weeks after we found our church that we thought would be our new forever home, um, my dad decided he missed Michigan and he just packed up and moved us back. So <laughs> that was, <Wow>. yeah. <laughs> so after uh, candidating all over for months, um, 
and all the drama that every time that we would go, I mean, we'd drive hours and hours to these locations. I'd go through this whole song and dance and then think to myself, maybe this is going to be my new home and my new friends and all this stuff. And then it would be like, he'd get the call. We, we voted you hundred percent. We want you in. And then, and then he'd say, Oh, I'll have to pray about that. And he wouldn't choose that church. And then I would, we'd go through it all over again a couple of weeks later. And, uh, over and over. And then we finally find one. We say these tearful goodbyes to everybody at our home church. It's a whole send off party and all that stuff. And then six weeks later, we're back. It was, it was weird. And uh, they just took him right back and put him right back in the same position as school teacher. Um, come to find out later, it was really because he missed his uh, mistress. But um, he was oh continuing, continuing that relationship. Uh, and uh, I didn't, I didn't really know. My brother knew he, he saw them together but i he didn't talk about it he didn't tell us i don't know if dad threatened him or told him not to or if he just knew better than to say anything but me i was living with my head in the sand enjoying my little lie right <laughs> but uh, uh my mom meanwhile was falling to pieces um obviously yeah. and uh that began to affect our family um one night uh living the lie uh, at dinner table um my mom just was anxious. She was shaking. And, um, she, when dad, we would all hold hands on the table and every night we had dinner together and we would pray and hold hands at the dinner table. And she just would not reach up to hold his hand. And we were all kind of wondering what's going on. And all of a sudden she just kind of like stood up and she said, I'm getting a divorce. And we were just jaws on the floor, us four kids. And we were like, what? <laughs> and, uh, wow. that was how we found out. And, um, she just stormed out. And when she stormed out, um, crying to her bedroom, my dad slammed his fist down at the table and said, eat your food. And, uh, he made sure that he sat there and made sure we ate every bite of our food. We couldn't cry. We couldn't ask questions. We just continued living the lie. So, um, it would continue like that for weeks. We didn't talk about much of anything after the announcement was made. Um, they sent us to camp and they were like, just go to Bible camp. And when you come back, um, I would have been 15 at the time. Uh, I had an older brother who was 16. Actually, I was 14. I was 14. My brother was 16. And then I had a brother who was 12 who went to camp with us too. And then the youngest was there. He was 10. And uh, they were like, go to camp and uh, don't talk about anything because those are our pastor friends, right? <laughs> and since I was going to local camp and they were like, don't talk about anything. That's no, nobody's business. Um, and uh, when you come back, mom and dad will have moved out from each other. And two of you will go with dad and two of you will go with mom. And that was, that was oh it. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. They told us, they told us uh, that we had to make the decision for ourselves. They said, uh, we won't, we don't want to tear our family apart by having a custody battle. And you kids are old enough to choose for yourself, which parent you want to live with. And that was a life-changing time for me because, well, obviously my parents divorced, but um also because it was a time when I made my faith my own um, because my mom at that point in her, in her life began to, uh, she had a mental breakdown. She really did. I mean, just everything that she'd been going through, she uh, was really struggling with anxiety and depression. She was on some medicines to help her with that. Uh, just during those months when she was still living at home with my dad and uh, it was really hard for her. She would shake all the time. I didn't understand what was happening and I was scared of her, honestly. I was scared of her behavior. Whereas my dad, he was capable of modeling this like stability that was comforting to me. And um, my mom took off, Did she just did things I didn't understand. Um, growing up as I did, 
all of a sudden my mom was like, she started wearing pants. She started wearing mini skirts. And to me, that was like, what is this? <laughs> I mean, I had always worn culottes and skirts below my knees. Right. And so seeing my mother change like that, it was like a flip-flop that she started hanging out with friends and going to clubs and partying and drinking. And I, I didn't understand any of that. She was 36 at the time. And, uh, she was married at 19, my mom. So, um, Anyway, it was it was really hard for me to watch all that, and I didn't understand what was happening. I mean, nobody told me or talked to me about it, and so for me, I basically I was choosing the legalism of the IFB because it was stability. But I told myself that I was choosing God because what Mom was doing felt like not choosing God, and so I chose to stay with my father despite everything he had done and who he was and how he treated us because I wanted that stability that he offered. Um, and I was afraid of what my mom was doing and the path she was going down. So I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I, even through all that, the IFB, it's like the churches, nobody reached out to 14 year old me and said, Hey girl, can I help you? What's going on? How's your family? What can I help you with this decision that you have to make? Nobody through any of that ever said, let me counsel you. Let me sit with you. Let me pray with you. What's on your heart? Not a single soul. I had to make that decision on my own, just me and the Lord. <laughs> so my parents didn't even talk to us about it. But I did. Another thing was, is I knew that my mom would love me no matter what decision I made. But I knew that my dad would not. He would, he would basically be done with me if I left him. And back to the purity culture we started with, it's like there was very, very much for me a daddy's girl um, thing that we did. It was all a make-believe lie because I was never really, I don't know, like, but he pretended, we, we pretended, <laughs> you know what I mean? So he would say, yeah. oh, your dad, your daddy's little girl and no one puts a ring on your finger unless daddy says so. And I'm going to buy you your first piece of jewelry. And he would say, he was very nostalgic like that. Um, I would write him poetry and sing, you know, I want to marry daddy when I grow up from Patch the Pirate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, that song will never be okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he used to, he and I used to sing duets together all the time. And uh, um, even when I was as little as like three or four, we would sing Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And he would have me stand on a little chair next to him. And he would sing, you know, uh, well, actually, I would start and I would say, Daddy, what can wash away my sins? And he would say, Sweetheart, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And it was this beautiful, I wanted that. I wanted it to be real. Yeah. But it, it wasn't real. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, he made all these promises vocally, if you will, that he would be my protector, my shield, my guide, my caregiver, but he wasn't. And um, I found so much of my, I don't know, my value, my safety. I didn't know how to advocate for myself or to stand for myself or anything really for who I was. Everything was about him. My whole world kind of revolved around him. And he was so easy to um, disappoint. Does that make sense? <laughs> so yeah. I strived really hard to be perfect to do things right to to worship him basically you know he's wonderful you're you know he used to love when i would say you're my strong and handsome and smart daddy and he would make me say that you wanted your ego pet. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> I, I need a 
step up my game is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> that was a, a game that we would play. Um, oh, and it, it was, it was a silly game, but he would tickle and uh, until I would, you know, couldn't breathe anymore. And I would, you know, please stop, please stop. You know, he's tickling until I would, and I would have to say, please stop my strong and handsome and smart daddy. And then he would stop. But if I didn't get all the words out, then he would continue. So, oh um, but that started when I was pretty little and um, it, it was just, I don't know it's just all part of that idea that you know he that he was my strong and handsome smart wise protective father but meanwhile you know like while i was supposed to keep myself from letting a boy date me and all the other things like he was doing all of that behind the scenes and uh while he would comment about what my mother wore and how tight her skirt was or how you know what the pastor's wife was wearing that day and he would comment on women's bodies and what they looked like or just all these things and yet you know, to find out that he was doing all that. <laughs> so he also, that was kind of the beginning of eating disorders for me um, because my dad also, you know, he had a lot of fat phobia. So a lot of comments about women's bodies, how fat they were, how heavy they were, you know, what they look like in their clothes and stuff. And I would, he would always say the thin look is a good look and on and on. And so I was just terrified of him thinking that about me. Um, mm. That's part of that. Um, of course, there's, back to purity culture, there's a lot of um, preaching about that too. You hear a lot of pastors get up there or evangelists are the worst and they'd get up there and they would, they'd be 500 pounds or something, but they, they'd be yelling about what girls look like in their skirts and how heavy they are. <laughs> so, but for women, we began to get quickly that our identity is found, or at least I did, this is my story, that uh, my identity, my worth and my value was wrapped up in my physical body and in the man that I was attached to, whether that be my father or my future husband. And so who I am, what I'm worth, all of that, um, what my calling is, everything, it's, it's all wrapped up in what I look like and what I look like will make me valuable to a man. And so that, that was a message that became very clear to me pretty early on, um, probably around 13 or 14 and around 15, as my body began to really develop as a woman, um, I noticed more attention that I would get and it became clear that, Hey, I'm more valuable now. I'm liked better. I get more attention. People pay attention to me. People are nicer to me now um, because of these things. And I was somebody who's craving love and attention. And so I wasn't getting it at home, obviously. <laughs> and so um, I craved that. And so growing in purity culture, you know, to, um, be pure, to protect men's eyes, all that stuff, but also being told to be beautiful, to be thin, to um, dress in an attractive way, all of these things. It's like, how do I balance both of these at the same time? It was, it was a lot. So as I began to develop uh, physically, and of course my parents going through all the stress I was going through around 14, 15, I stopped eating a lot. I didn't eat very much and I noticed I lost weight. And then as I lost weight, even more attention would come my way. Suddenly it's mm. like, Oh, look at you, girl. You look so pretty. Oh, you're so thin. And they, all the things they would say, Oh, I bet there, I bet there's boys going on. You know, all the things they would say to me. And I was, I loved the attention. So I lost more weight. And, um, part of the losing weight was skipping meals and things was anxiety for me. I was going through so much. I couldn't eat. Um, and, uh, I couldn't eat. And as I lost weight, I began to realize that, Hey, the more weight I lose, the better. So I might as well skip these meals on purpose. Um, once I got to the point where it was just me and dad and my little brother, dad kind of forgot to feed us a lot. So 
um, he would leave, go to work. At that point in time, he was no longer in the Christian ministry, obviously. They had to let him go. <laughs> so he went back to the police, and uh, he was a cop, and uh, he uh, he would go, he would work the night shift, and he'd forget that we were home. I think he just kind of out of sight, out of mind, you know, just... Oh my goodness. Forgot we were there. And so he wouldn't feed us necessarily or tell us what to eat or anything. I guess he figured I was 15. I should know how to feed myself, but I didn't. And also he would, he'd go crazy sometimes if we ate the wrong food. So if I ate a food that he was designated for something else or that was his, then like he would get really angry and I didn't Mm -hmm. want to risk that. So rather than just not eat anything than make him mad. So hence part of the weight, weight loss. And so I started losing lots of weight and not that I was heavy before, but I'm suddenly very, very thin at 15. Right. And, um, that's kind of around there, but I wanted to back up again for, I was talking about doubts and salvation Yeah. at at 15, right before I went to camp and right before my mom left the home, or I, actually we left because mom's kept the house. But anyway, um, right before that, she had a a suicide attempt. And it wasn't, I mean, my dad would scoff and say it wasn't that serious because what she took didn't end up actually being you know, lethal. But to me, it was serious. Um, she took a whole bunch of pills. I don't even remember what they were, but um, she told us that she wanted to die. And she went in her bed and laid down and said, I hope I never wake up. And Mm-hmm. Um, my dad like called poison control, talked to some people. And then he was like, he made fun of her and laughed at how stupid she was for taking something that wasn't even a very a viable suicide attempt. So I don't know what that oh meant. Cause goodness. I was only, I was only 14. So <laughs> I didn't understand, wow. but I crawled in bed next to my mother that night. And, um, I kept her up all night cause I was scared that if she fell asleep, she wouldn't wake up. And, um, fear once again was a factor for me. And, uh, I, I knew that my mom would go to be with Jesus, but I was scared that maybe I wouldn't. And so one more time, I asked Jesus to, just in case I didn't mean it right the first time, (laughs) I asked him to save me again. (laughs) And, uh, but I stayed up all night chatting with my mom and trying to keep her awake and singing her songs and worshiping the Lord with her. And uh, it was a special moment for me. And I know, I don't, I don't think I ever really doubted it this ever again after that. Um, I just knew that I, that it was there, you know, Yeah. there's been times I didn't feel saved, but uh, for the most part, I mean, I never doubted whether or not Jesus did his part. And so that helped me a lot, but um, I think a, a lot of kids run that too, where you have this like, Oh, I've maybe it didn't take, right. right. <laughs> I kind of had that perspective as a kid too. I was like, Oh, maybe I did. I kind of did a bad thing the other day. Maybe, maybe I really wasn't, wasn't really believing in Jesus before. So now I'm going to really believe in him. <laughs> so I definitely understand that perspective. I, think, I mean, same thing, IFB too, right? Because the fire brimstone, like, if you do this and this and this, you need a yeah. question, are you even saved? I'm like, am I even saved? Like, I mean, that was the constant fear-mongering. Um, yeah. And then one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was interesting, I thought to rewind a little bit, and then I'll let you keep going, but when you mentioned, like, purity culture and, like, your weight loss, like, wanting to look a certain way uh, because like, okay, well, I'm not supposed to be too revealing to men to attract their eyes for, from lust, but also I'm supposed to be attractive and attract men mm-hmm. so they can desire me. Yeah. So where's the bail? I, I remember as a young man uh, on the flip side of that, I was so confused too. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, the pretty young ladies, you got to marry one one day. Cause again, uh, your whole value was, are you a man who's 
Mary who's providing for a family. That was mm. your value. And so I was like, all right, I got to be on a hunt for a woman. And then, oh, well, you stay away from those young ladies, young man. Don't you hurt none of them. I'm like, am I supposed to be with them? Am I not supposed to be with them? Look at them. They're pretty. Yeah, they're pretty. Stop looking. You're lusting. Ah, okay. And don't look. I'm so confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I then also it was like this whole thing, like you, like men, the only thing that they're really interested in is physical, right? Because like you would have a 500 pound dude screaming this, like women, you need to be doing this for your men and the men don't, your appearance doesn't matter because women don't appreciate a, 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 you know, washboard abs at all. Um, so um, they, and I just remember also always being like, okay, so it was always like for the man, as a young man, it was like all that apparently I'm supposed to be really interested in is, is she gonna father my children? sexual relationship. That's all, you know, there was never talking about proper companionship and uh, proper love. And I, so I just remember I was so confused and it was weird because as they focus so much on the physical like that, and their whole thing is like, you know, women being desirable still for your husbands, right? That's their whole thing. And then their whole thing is like, well, also keeping like your sexual attraction within your marriage. But what they don't realize is because they harp on it so much to keep you away from sexual immorality, all they do is make you actually more sexually curious, I feel like. Because yes. you're like, what's all this about? You know, you're like, what, what's, what's all this? I didn't think about it until you brought it up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. Now I don't know what to do about that because everything I'm told is wrong. Absolutely. So I, yeah, so just something that I wanted to, because I, I was like, I, it's interesting hearing that because my sister will talk about too, that too, like what it did with her as a woman. And it's just so weird because it's like us men and women were dealing with it from, but from flip sides on how, how in the world we even walk that walk. So anyway, um, and so you're talking about your mom and all that. So go ahead and continue. Well, I apologize. To what you said about women keeping themselves just so for their husband, that's part of the thing that hurt so much for my mother was she went to see Jack Kyle's when uh, my dad had his second affair and uh, to ask counsel, what do I do? You know, and uh, they've been married 14 years, I think at that point, or maybe it was 17. I don't remember if it was 14 or 17. It would have been 17 years. They'd been together 17 years and he was, you know, in his other, another affair and that, that he was caught in. I'm sure there were other things and I know he had a pornography addiction as well, but um, Jack Hiles, basically he, my mom said that all he did was look over at her and said, well, does he love her? And my mom says, I don't see what that has to do with anything. <laughs> and yeah. that's pretty much to me, to him, it was just like, well, you know, forgive and be faithful and just keep, you know, stay in your marriage. And, you know, I mean, I guess if he loved her, he loved her. And uh, my dad said some, my mom had just given birth to her fourth child when he was with the, the 18 year old girl. And his reasoning was that she was sexually more attractive to him because she was 18 and beautiful and young and all of these other things that are too vulgar to say. But uh, my mom, having had birth four children in the period of six years, was just not not it for him anymore, I guess. So wow. so again, that, that message of I have to keep myself physically a certain way. And um, that would only continue to be reinforced for me over and over um, through my teenage years and into college, especially as I got into college um, with the marriage classes and things that they would talk about was to keep on being and doing exactly what you were for the rest of your life if you want to keep your husband because, you know, he married you the way that you are. And so if you were ever not you the way you are, then he has pretty much a license and a reason for doing what he does. 
that's your fault. <laughs> so wow. um, that was a lot of the the shame or the uh, pressure that I felt for physical beauty um, from Hiles Anderson in my childhood. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't know that every girl felt that, but that was the message that I got. Um, Based on a lot of conversations I've had with other women, though, raising that IFB, especially like the, of the Hiles vein, um, share similar sentiments. Um, I grew. You probably know this because of, uh, the IFB is a very broad group. Even though there's certain similar strands across all of them, there there are different camps of it. Yes. Uh, so we were of like the crown, co the crown and Maranatha vein. So we were a little less like crazy, <laughs> um, for like a better term, but it doesn't mean we didn't attract some crazy. So it was funny because like some of those things were around, but they weren't as, they weren't as prominent. Other things were, were more prominent um, than like at like the Hiles. I would say like Hiles crowd and like the Fairhaven crowd, they were less about appearances as, as ours was. Ours was, because again, if you go to Crown, everything's super posh like extremely posh and uh so it was like my appearance was like number one focus so it's just interesting how different veins emphasize different things but i have noticed that's a similar vein and a lot of women raised in the ifb is that they felt like they were constantly being subjugated and then always being basically for i hate the term body shamed but it's like legitimately what that would be like not what we say nowadays is body shaming where we're saying you know being 400 pounds is unhealthy oh, it, it really was body shaming only it was kind of a reverse type body shaming they didn't generally body shame the girls who were heavy or who didn't you know they called them frumpy um sometimes they'd call us cows but um for the most part they didn't do too much other than that but like they would <laughs> actually there's uh it reminds me there's a girl uh at my college um she she was you could say she was curvy let's put it that way um and she she had a she had a you know she was a woman who had a fine figure and because she could wear she would be within dress code okay so she would be within dress code but she you can't help what your body is right like unless you're you work out and you're very scientific about it but generally speaking your body most people aren't that specific like and yeah. she was just one of those people that's like just happened to have a very be blessed with a very good situation but she got pulled into the um, the office all the time for being immodest, and yeah. she would be within dress code. Yeah. And that's the craziest part. She'd be within dress code, but just because she was attractive. That's exactly how it was at Hiles Anderson. I was often failed, and they would literally cite on my demerits for looking too good. That's where you just fling your hair back and go, well, sorry. <laughs> it comes natural. What do you want from me? <laughs> that was God's work. <laughs> say well why am i failing what's wrong and she goes well, i don't know what's wrong specifically with all this but you just look too good oh so, my gosh and so, so how do you fix that i don't know i don't know what modesty issue i'm fixing here i just looked too good so right. you, yeah i don't I've, I've seen that happen where it's like it was always the pretty girls that would get attacked and like the ones that were the most attractive is like it was almost like it, it I, I actually always wondered this when i was at crowd and i noticed this i was like what does that make the other girls feel like if they don't get pulled in for looking too good? ugly. It shows you how much some of those guys were just thinking well, along those lines, unfortunately. But. Exactly. But, but as to the shaming, it's like that that's the kind of a reverse of body shaming. But like because the girls who looked too good, if you will, they were told that. But then we were also praised and rewarded because obviously you never wanted for dates. All the guys wanted to date you. But like um, another thing was the college would um, – only ask girls to sing on tour if they were 
physically attractive um, under a certain weight. Um, you couldn't be over a size 12 to be on the tour group. Um, they had like a weight limit, size limit for um, who was allowed to be um, on their like, not stewardesses, hostesses. They called us hostesses. So like for the various conferences, they would um, ask the girls who were, who fit their kind of stewardess like <laughs> type look um, who could do the smile and wave and, uh, and all that stuff. And, uh, and God, that's so gross. Yeah. And they it would, um, yeah, they would recruit us and um, get us special uniforms and they would have us parade um, in front of pastor school and sell the books and greet the delegates and all of that. And uh, take it was it was a lot of work. They would literally bring us to the college buses to the to the church campus and have us like primp in front of like these mirrors or they have us curl our hair, put our makeup on, wear the special outfits, all this stuff. And it was it was exhausting. Um, I did People want to talk about objectification. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So. You do that for years. If you if you got too heavy, they would they wouldn't pick you. Um, but uh, I always got to do that. <laughs> so fun. But um, uh, the thing is, is though, while that's all a real positive message for me, my physical being at that point in time felt really good. Right? I was like, I'm thin. I weighed like 110 pounds. I was, you know, young and pretty and all these things. But it's like as I grew older obviously age sets in i have babies um life moves on and i don't look like i looked when i was 21 years old right and none of us and, do <laughs> exactly <laughs> but, but the message that was told to me was that oh you know now you're not you're not valuable anymore right you're you're one of those girls i wouldn't have been picked if i looked like this you know i wouldn't have been you see, and so it really began yeah. to weigh on me as I had more babies and as I grew a little older, um, by the time I, you know, each baby kind of added 10 more pounds and life, you know, stress, the weight, weight gain, all of that. And so I began to really struggle with eating disorder a little bit, again, skipping meals and just having an overall bad relationship with food. Um, because food was shame almost for me, you know, because to be heavy is shameful. It's to be unspiritual. It's to lack self-control. It's to not be fulfilling my husband's desires and all the other things that I was taught. And so um, that that is kind of part of the purity culture there as well, um, that maybe boys didn't have to face and girls did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder too, like, I think it's almost like ironic. I'm hearing you discuss this, Julian, you know, it's almost, this, it's really this focus on your identity, but your identity is not being focused on being in Christ. Your identity is outward appearance, what you eat, how presentable you are, what you're wearing, which ironically, and I know a lot of the, the super conservative IP people will not like this, is, is very, very similar to progressive Christianity, where it's also focused on a whole lot of physical identity characteristics and not about being in Christ. And that'll, and I think that's, that's a big miss. And as your identity changes, right, progressive Christianity, what your sexual orientation is or what gender you decide to be today, whatever, that is, that's changing your identity. Whereas if you focus your identity in Christ, that's unchanging. And that's something that you, that you can put a lot of faith and trust in. The other thing that blows me away, and I think takeaway for me, you have this from your childhood, but when you were going through things, when Julie's going through her parents are divorced, and she's just like, well, someone just come and talk to me and counsel me. And it sounds like the only thing that people came and talked to you about was when you lost five pounds and they wanted to say that you look better. Yeah. And how like, you, how shame you on better. the church. That's what they want to talk to you about, is how you done better, how you could do better, or how you have done better. That's not that's not what she needs. So if there's if there's a young child in your church that's going through something, don't let that be what you say to them. Actually, 
try to reach in their lives, be an opportunity for discipleship. If someone needs some actual counseling, be there for them. That's actually, I think, bearing burdens of the church. And I think the IFB in general is pretty bad at it, but I would say in general, the Western church is kind of bad at it. Well, right. in general, though, um, we weren't allowed to have burdens. So <laughs> yeah. ha having a burden meant that you were not walking in faith. Um, mm -hmm. And as a girl... Um, there is a particular stress on being effervescent and cheerful and happy all the time. And um, that's one of the things that girls are expected. We're not ever supposed to have negative emotions like anger or um, frustration, sarcasm. We were supposed to be sweet and smiling and bright-faced all the time. And uh, that was that's a lot to bear. Um, that's a mask yeah. that I had to wear because I was not smiling and effervescent and, and happy when I was going through all of this. Um, I was, I began to have severe migraines, um, often anxiety attacks. I didn't know they were anxiety attacks back then, but, um, just on and on. It was, it was, it was really bad and, uh, it would get dizzy and probably part of that's lack of food, but, um, I was, I was anemic, um, things like that. But, you can't tell anybody about that. You have to smile. You have to be happy. You have to say, isn't God good? And uh, all of that. So no, the church can't really bear your burdens with you if they don't know you have them. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everybody at my church, I mean, I'm not trying to throw them all under the bus because partly they probably thought, look at them. Those kids are so strong. They're so, so wise. They're doing so good. They have such strong faith. Um, because we looked like we were doing everything fine. We looked like we were fine. And yeah, so, you were nope. trained to do that. So you didn't even know how to be vulnerable or how to go out of your way to open up or how to ask for help. Yeah. And honestly, it's not fair to ask young people for that anyway. But when you're raised in a culture that that's what's promulgated, you mm -hmm. really don't. You're like almost like you're emo like I say all the time, like I was emotionally and mentally just kind of broken and I didn't even realize it because yeah. I was living what I thought was my normal not realizing how broken I was. And I had to like retrain my entire behavioral and thought process. It's taken years. It's still hard for me to, to show those, what I would call negative emotions. Um, I feel a lot of shame sometimes when I have them and I've had to do a lot of work on myself to recognize that it's okay to be angry. It's okay to show that I'm angry. It's okay that, um, because if you bottle all that anger up or all that frustration up, anxiety, eventually it comes out kind of explosive. And that's something about me that would happen is, you know, I mean, I'm so sweet and I was gentle and all these other things. And all of a sudden just this rage monster would come out and people are like, <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and nobody would, nobody ever believed it. It's like, but I would say, no, I do. I had a terrible temper and I said things and I went on and on. And I mean, it was just, it was awful, but I hurt people with my words, but nobody ever believed that because I would only let that part of me out when I was safe with the people I loved the most. And uh, unfortunately, my husband and children would bear that part of my unhealed self. And uh, that's uh, one of the dangers of that shiny, happy people that you have when you bottle it all up and pretend to be this shiny, bright based, you know, joyful, gentle soul all the time, but you're really repressing <laughs> so much. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's not healthy. I know that now, but um, I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't know how to be sorrowful. I didn't know how to be angry. I didn't know so many of those things. And so when those emotions naturally did come out, they were all wrong. And I would often be in sin. So when I was in those, um, because they would create a, a spiral of shame because I would have those emotions 
And then because I didn't know how to properly have those emotions, I would end up um, sinning in those emotions with anger or frustration or saying ugly things to people. And then I would feel so much shame afterwards because my value was found in or was found <laughs> in being this perfect person. And suddenly I was oh no, I messed it all up and I'm not the perfect person. And maybe everybody would be better off without me. Maybe if I just wasn't here, I wouldn't hurt everybody all the time. And that was a thought I entertained quite often as a young mother. Um, and then uh, it kind of went away for a few years. Um, but yeah, a couple of years ago after my dad died, I, I finally sat down with my husband and expressed to him that I was having, I, I'd had suicidal thoughts in the past, several times but that you know that it was still happening even as recently as two years ago was um something that i had to talk to him about um and he really helped me through that and i've been doing really really good it's been a long time since i'd had the intrusive thoughts or thoughts of self-harm or anything like that um so it, it's really important that we recognize our identities because when we don't know and find our value and our identity and who god is the constant god and uh then you'll find it in all these other things and places and they are always shifting and changing and you lose your sense of self, your sense mm -hmm. of value, your sense of worth. And, uh, and it's, it's a scary place to be, to not know if you belong in the world anymore. And, uh, I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, it absolutely does. Because uh, yeah. that's the anchor, that the, the thing that kind of grounds your reality. Because when you mentioned like not being able to process emotion properly, I relate with that as well. One of the things for me, because I, I, anyone knows, again, you know my story. Um, and, and most people listen to the program do. Like I was raised in, in this very abusive home where people were just explosive. And in IFB, it was very much, and you know this, how men, how as top men are, you have to be the men of courage, you have to be strong, you have to be tough, you have to say the way it is and not apologize. If you knew me because I was from, and I didn't I realize this until much later, a lot of my symptoms were because I was in an abusive home. I was quiet, meek, insecure, terrified of my own shadow. Like if you asked me to go talk to somebody, I'd be like, ha ha, no way. Like uh, I just, I was a kid, I'd rather be quiet, alone, and in my bedroom with the door closed, no one invading my, my space. And I didn't realize I was me creating like, in a sense, my own like emotionally secure bubble, even as a teenager. It's um, funny because I was the opposite. Like, I, it's funny because that was my coping mechanism was to be the opposite. It was to be a fawn response, to be bright and cheerful and to make everybody like me and to be a people pleaser and to do all the right things all the time and say all the right things and never make anybody angry and to, to think ahead and see and perceive what your problem might be and maybe that facial expression might mean to do this instead or do that instead and i was very mm. empathic and could i could tell quickly and so it made me a very popular person people liked me i was very popular i had i was all the authorities thought i was the best <laughs> they all they're like <laughs> oh you know they they i was constantly the poster child for what you should be that's interesting yeah because i mean for me it was like the like I did that and I, at the church. I started trying to like at church to try to impress some people because um, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, look at me. I'm doing the puppet show. All right. And then no recognition. While meanwhile, all it was was screams of attention. Like I really just because yeah. I, the, what I was depraved from at home. But then I ran into this whole thing where men are supposed to be this way. But if I acted strong at all, put my foot down in any way, I was called rebellious and horrible. So I'm like, I emulate what I'm being preached to, but now I'm being called rebellious and you mm -hmm. know, and I had no idea. So finally, I my for me, my temper just would explode. I lashed out. I can't tell you how many people in the past, how many people's feelings I've hurt. My brother and I got, we talked about, I think, at his program or mine. Yeah, uh, I think it was his. <laughs> yeah, we got into a 
big brawl. I mean, finally one day, I mean, the brother I protected for years, we got into a brawl. I exploded. Uh, we put a hole in the wall. That was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and now we just laugh at it because we're like, wow, yeah, things were bad back then. And, you know, we were not, none of us were in a healthy place. But it's just funny because, like, for you, you were expected to have this shininess about you and this and this um, cheerfulness and this fake fake smiliness. I was like, as a man, I was very confused as to what I was, what was expected to me, expected of me as a man. Because one moment I'm told to stand up for myself and be strong and say what needs to be said. The moment I do that, I'm being like beat down, demanded apologies from everyone, and like it, it, some of the stuff I said wasn't even bad, but because I dared challenge a status quo at all. And now you see where the seed bed was really truly born for this show, right back there. That was just fine. <laughs> Finally, they they told me to shut up too much. Now I just have a mic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that the male perspective there, because you're right, men were expected to be those things, and I was taught to expect that from men. So I was taught to expect men to protect me to look out for me, to have discernment over me because I was too stupid to make my own decisions. And, uh, <laughs> um, you, know, you know, daddy will tell you what to do because you don't have any discernment, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you're just a dumb girl, you know? And so you listen to your preacher, you listen to your father, you let your brothers and your dad protect you and choose you, um, uh, help you choose a mate and all the things they would say. And so I kind of learned this, like, just easy float through, you know, you could, it's easier to put on that smile when you don't have any cares in the world because somebody else is going to make all your decisions for you. So, mm -hmm. um, but what I didn't know is that my dad would eventually decide he didn't want that job anymore. And I would be left completely inequipped to deal mm. with anything. So, um, in my story, when I got to the age of 16, after living a year with my dad, um, all of the drama that that was and the neglect and um i couldn't ask for things we were you know as i said you know there was food insecurity stuff like that but there was so much more um going on uh he would just be gone uh, you know all just a lot of things you know he would be dating um i would take care of my little brother he was 11 and we we had to continue going to the same christian school so that was hard <laughs> so you know we wow. lived in the same house went to the same tiny little school at the same church where my dad's shame was well known but, you know, I had to continue putting on the shiny, happy face um, and pretend like everything was fine for my uh, next three years of school. And eventually I was tired um, and I missed my mother. As uh, I became a more of a young woman, uh, 16, I was like, I want to go live with my mom. And um, I made the wrong choice. <laughs> it was my choice, right? And so I was like, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe I missed my mom and I want to go home to my mom. And uh, I told my mom that and she's like, oh, okay, we can do that. You know, let your dad know and we'll, we'll do a little switcheroo here with the custody stuff. I told my dad and um, most of the memories of that night I've repressed. I really don't remember much of what happened that night. My brother, my stepmom have told me some things, but um, he blew up. <laughs> he, uh, he blew up. He shamed me. He screamed and he yelled and it went on for hours and hours. And um, the only thing I really remember is that he told me that I was no longer his daughter, uh, that oh uh, he was done with me. Uh, that I would never again be his little girl, <laughs> which for me, somebody who found so much worth and value in that, that was just absolutely heartbreaking. And um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, and that night, I remember that was my first suicidal day, you know, thought. You know, I laid, I cried for hours in my bed till I could no longer cry tears and um, just thought about going out to the car. And my dad kept a revolver there. And I remember thinking, I could just walk outside 
and get that out of the glove box. It would be so easy. And um, it started as a comforting thought. And then it turned into a, um, a thought where I was, uh, it was like revenge for me almost. Like he hurt me so bad. And maybe I could make him feel something. Maybe he would be sorry. Maybe he would love me if I was gone. And um, I thought about it literally as I was cons- getting to the point where working up my courage to get that to that moment, my stepmom had somehow talked my dad into um, coming into the bedroom and just kind of like, he didn't apologize, but they just, you know, said like basically that I could still live with them. Um, Even though I didn't want to live with them, I wanted to live with my mom. But (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, my stepmom was a, was an angel. And she, that's really part of the reason why I thought I could leave because um, once she had come into the picture, I thought that, dad would be okay without me and my little brother would be okay because they had, you know, her now. And I had kind of fulfilled a a wife type role for my dad, not in a sexual way, of course, but, you know, emotionally. Um, And so cooking and just, you know, emotional things and all that stuff. And so I thought that it would be okay to say that I'm ready to go be with my mom now for my teenage, you know, last junior, senior year was not. (laughs) But um, from there, a custody battle began because my mom was very angry that my dad denied me the ability to move to be with her. So she hires a lawyer and she got a whole case going that she was going to prove that I was being emotionally and mentally, verbally abused, all that kind of stuff. And so she she was ready to fight. Right. <laughs> and um, she told me, don't you worry about it. You know, I'll, I'll figure it out. We'll take it to court and I'll make sure that you can come be with me if you want to come be with me. And a um, couple months later, um, mom comes up to, to Michigan and, you know, I'm a Chris this whole time. It was just awful because dad was punishing me the whole time. Right. Like he was he was angry with me the whole time and he never forgave me. <laughs> but um, uh, he we, he picked me up from school and they talked to me for um, the whole like almost an hour driving into Traverse City where we, we where I lived um, and uh, t- telling me about how I should just all the spiritual talk about honoring your father and uh, just all that kind of stuff, you know, obeying your parents and, and just um, a lot of honor your father. <laughs> but uh, um, I. I got to there and I thought that my mom would just, I would just have to sit still and be quiet. And my mom and the lawyer would deal with it all. And I would get to be free. I would get to go, but that's not what happened. Um, my dad, I think, and I can't verify this, but I think he had some kind of connection through law enforcement with the, um, justice there because rather than getting to present her case or going into custody court, um, they pulled me into an office and said, uh, so you want to go live with your mom? And I it was just me and the justice and uh, or judge or whoever. And they were like, so you want to go live with your mom? And I said, yes, I do. I really do. And, and he's like, well, you know, if you want to live with your mom, you'll have to emancipate your parents because you're old enough to make that decision. I didn't know what that meant because I was barely 16. And um, he was like, yeah, yeah. He said, you'll have, you can emancipate your parents and you can be an adult. And he said, you'll be an adult. You would, you would just be responsible for yourself, your own decisions. You know, you could choose where you want to go to school, what you want to do. You can get a job. Um, you would no longer qualify for your parents' insurance. I and mean, he really gave me like a, a scare. Like I was terrified because I was thinking I am not ready to be an adult. I mean, remember I've been trained my whole life to lean on my father. So this idea that I would be standing on my own two feet, basically I thought I was going to be like homeless as an adult. Um, I don't know why it didn't occur to me that I would just go live with my mom as an adult, but like, and she would take care of me, but I didn't, that wasn't this picture that was being painted. 
And so I thought, well, I can't do that. I can't emancipate my dad. So if that's the only way to go be with mom, I won't do that. And um, he, so the judge was like, okay, well, here, I'll tell you what, we can get you some more visitation. So you can, instead of just getting two weeks a year with your mom at Christmas, because my mom lived in Texas and I'm, my dad was in Michigan. So he, he said, I'll give you the whole summer. So now you can go spend three months with your mom. And I was like, well, that's a better deal than what I have now, just two weeks a year. So um, I took the deal and um, came out and my dad kind of forgave me at that point because basically I had chosen him again. And um, so I had honored him. I had chosen to stay with him. Um, And he, of course, he gave me a lot of um, talk about how girls were emotional and following, I was following my heart and I wasn't making a decision based on principle and all that stuff. And so, I mean, there was all kinds of discernment talk going on. I was so confused and, um, but he kind of forgave me at that point, but he did tell me that I would be his daughter again until I was 18 or, um, and then he would be, I would be on my own. So Wow. Anyway, yeah. That's so, to make you feel warm and fuzzy like that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You get two more years of being my daughter. <laughs> oh, my I, goodness. I have letters. Since my dad died, um, he had kept every letter and note I ever wrote to him from the time I was old enough to write. He had a whole file of them. And uh, I could go back and read them, how I would try to earn his love and tell him, you know, I hope one day I can earn your forgiveness. I hope that one day you will. I could be your little girl again. Um, I wanted him to see me that way again, but that was the first time in my life that I had ever dared to vocalize standing up for myself, making my decision that wasn't his decision. And um, apparently I I learned quickly that that was not okay. Wow. And uh, I didn't try that again. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I did get my summer with mom and that year I got to go, um, well, I, anyway, my dad, you know, obviously a difficult person, but I, I, kind of a weird part of me being, uh, my story is I do not drive. I'm 30, I'm going to be 38 and I still don't have a driver's license, like technically. So, mm-hmm. um, I know. Um, but at 15, when my dad, uh, and I were trying to learn to drive up there in Michigan, he had an 82 Chevy van. So this thing was like huge. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, it was one of the cars, but it was the one that he would let me drive. So, I was on my way to driver's ed, just had gotten my pink permit and it was icy and snowy outside and we had a hill and I ended up in an accident. It wasn't a major accident, but it was enough to scare me to death. Um, We started like sliding down the ice and my dad was screaming and yelling and he was always critical about anything anyway, but like the driving as a police officer, he was just really hard to drive with. Right. (laughs) But um, when I had that accident, I mean, and during the accident, I was so scared. And not only was I scared just because it was an accident and I was the one supposed to be in control, but I was also displeasing my dad and I was ruining his van, his van and all these things with so much anxiety tied up in that accident. But like, it was one of the only, I think it was the only time that my dad ever apologized to me about anything in my life was after that accident, he got me a little card and it had a little like bear on it. And it said, I'm sorry. And that was, that was all said, but (laughs) the way that he treated me after that accident, you know, he, he was, he said he was sorry, but I, I could never drive with him again. Um, so my mom that summer enrolled me in driver's ed and I did great. had so much fun, got to do it with my cousin. Um, we were, I was so excited. I had to turn 16 and then I would be allowed to um, get my license. So I was just waiting for my 16th birthday, but this is all happening right, was all happening kind of right before the custody battle. And my dad blew up when he realized that I had taken driver's ed in Texas. 
without him, Uh-oh. without his permission. And he forbid me from getting a license. Um, so I didn't get my license because I didn't want to displease dad. So, um, oh my yeah, but um, it was a huge episode. Again, it was a, probably the second big mistake I'd made um, after asking to live with mom was trying to get a license without him. So not every girl is controlled to the level that I was controlled in that environment, but I think many of them are more than we realize. Um, and it's even if their controller is more loving than mine was um, because of the sense of dependence that girls are trained to have. Um, you might have somebody who's lovingly and gently and kindly controlling you, but nevertheless, you are under the control of someone else. You are leaning on someone else to guide you, to, to make decisions for you, to tell you where to go and what to do. And you don't know. And they keep you very naive on purpose. And part of that naivety, I think, is because, well, they would say, oh, well, we don't want you to have burdens and you're too gentle or you're too um, quiet or sensitive or all the things they would tell me, you know, you just you just keep on being you, you know, your smiley, happy person that you are. We don't want to burden you with all this. And so you kind of have this empty airhead type I don't know. Basically, they want us to be pretty little bimbos that just kind of like, hey, don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they didn't, oh, didn't want to say, don't, don't think too hard. You know, you might, I don't know, you know. It's like strain a muscle. Yeah. If you have an actual thought, we can't control you no more. So just, that's true. <laughs> to stay pretty and don't think. Yeah. yeah. And so when I got to that age and I started thinking and I started thinking, hey, maybe I could do this. And it was like, oh, no, no, don't do that. You know, don't make those decisions. And uh, that was that was a wake up call. (laughs) But uh, I kept I kept in line with him after that. I did what I was supposed to do. Um, I graduated at 17 um, from almost 18. But I graduated and I went straight to Hiles Anderson because that was the only choice. that dad would approve of. There was nowhere else. I mean, we pretended like I could look at um, uh, Pensacola Christian College, but it was never actually an option. And my stepmom, she was from Bob Jones, and she, you know, of course, she talked that up real big, um, and we pretended like I could consider that, but it was never a consideration. I had to go to my dad's alma mater because that's what he wanted. So um, I did. I went there, um, and almost immediately upon arriving at Hiles Anderson, the, the migraines and the eating disorders and all of that just got so much worse. I dropped like another 10, 15 pounds. Um, I was having migraines on a probably three times a week, three, four times a week. Um, the anxiety attacks got to the point where I wasn't just shaking and having heart palpitations, but I was literally passing out um, probably about three to four times a week. Um, oh I would goodness. just wow. black out. So, um, they had to, but right, like just a couple weeks after this all started, my dad was like, oh, you're 18. So um, I'm dropping you off my health insurance. So he stayed true to his word. Um, he was done with me. I was 18. So he didn't, he didn't ever, he never helped me with my bill. He never sent me 20 bucks in the mail for laundry or meals or anything. He never even helped me get home for Christmas. Um, I had, if I wanted to get home for Christmas, I had to hitch a ride with a friend who was heading that way. Uh he never anything. Um, but yeah, I was still so trained to be daddy's girl and daddy's going to protect me and daddy's going to watch out for me. And daddy's going to make sure I have the right guy that, you know, that's a good guy. And how do I know? Cause I'm too stupid to know what's a good guy. And so <laughs> meanwhile, it's doing none of those things for you. Not a single one. 
Exactly. And so while I was literally trained from birth to depend on my dad for all of these things, he did none of the things. He wanted all of the benefits of having a daddy's little girl who looked up to him and who, you know, adored him and all of those things. But he wanted none of the responsibility. Yeah. He just wanted the ego part. Yeah. And uh, he liked the idea, not the work. Yeah. Which unfortunately is true of a lot of men. Yeah. Uh, I had to learn that. Yeah. (laughs) But... (laughs) Um, I would always have guys I dated um, call my dad. It was just this like token thing because I knew that if I didn't, then there would be hell to pay. But like he just, you know, he didn't care, though. Like when the guys would call, he'd just be like, yeah, you know, you can date her. Like he didn't actually care. He didn't actually get to know them or anything like that. And so it was anyway, my first boyfriend at college um, turned out to be a, you know, he was a pretty nice guy, but then he ended up after a year, he got expelled. And that was a whole thing at the college. Cause um, I was told in a private meeting that I hadn't, I, you can't date an expelled student. So after he was expelled, I was told like, I have to break up with him like right now. <laughs> and so we'd been together for a whole year and it was just like, break up with him right now or you're expelled too. What the world? Yeah, there's a reason why they call it a cult, bro. <laughs> I wasn't kidding. <laughs> So I feel I, like I've heard so much about the IFP, and then still now I'm like, wow, did not dude, expect we that only, to be a thing We either. only could ever scrape the surface. Once in a while, a new detail comes up. But for us, that was just Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, after after a year together, we were, you know, together for a year, and he was like, you know, I just had to call him up, and I couldn't tell him why. I couldn't say anything else. We never spoke to each other again after that, and it was it. That was the end. And uh, he was expelled. He was done, you know. And uh, after that, though, I – was told by this counselor that you're lacking discernment and you're you're in need of a godly man to protect you because you obviously made the wrong choice in dating that young man. So <laughs> I will be your dating counselor. And basically he said he would be my kind of my dad on campus. Does that make sense? It was really kind of creepy actually, but like he kind of took me in and he was going to be my, my, my dating counselor slash discerner slash dad, because he was kind of, he kind of stroked that part of me that said, you don't have a good dad. And that was Mm -hmm. the first time somebody really kind of helped me see that. But this man was not a good surrogate for me. Uh, He just, he was not, but um, he kind of pushed me into a relationship along with several other staff members with a guy who was, I was, 18, but I was almost 19. I, I think I was 19 at the time. Yeah, I was 19. Um, pushed me into a relationship with a guy who was 24 and um, 25. 25. Um, he'd lived a lot more life than I had. Um, I, we didn't talk about those things. <laughs> but uh, he was going to be a missionary. And because I was one of the pretty girls, I was to be his reward. Oh, my goodness. So... Ugh. Um, because I Brian, remember, are you are you I'm doing so okay? I'm getting pissed off here. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, "Well, because I I remember after maybe a couple of dates saying, you know, I don't think I'm really that into this guy. Um, he's kind of weird. He's a little ugly. Um, you know." And they were like, "They said he's a godly young man, and he's going to the mission field, and God's going to use him, and you should be honored to date this young man, and because he's such a godly young man." and has chosen you to date. Um, it's like, it's God is blessing him with you. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then they told me you should be honored because you are from the home that you're from, because you're from a broken home, because your dad is who your dad is. He is taking a great risk in dating you and you should be honored. 
And I, I kind of took that as like a, um, a challenge because to me, they were calling my character into question and saying like, you don't deserve to date the guy that you don't want to date. <laughs> and so then it was like, okay, I want to bet I can do, I can be the person. Right. <laughs> and so at that point it was like, I want to do that. And so he latched onto that, this young man, he, uh, he began to use that on me a lot. Well, I'm taking a big risk in dating you. Um, he would say things like that um, because you're, uh, you're sweet control <laughs> gaslighting tactics, <laughs> oh man. That's just... And so um, I believed him. I, I tried so hard. I mean, I thought I was a good girl before, but I was an even better girl. I was Miss Highlander at this point. Like I was all the things. I mean, but I was still passing out. I was still um, having migraines um, and anxiety attacks and all that. Uh, but um, that summer, uh, he came to meet my family in Texas, and um, it was the 4th of July, and he, uh, we went to fireworks, and my mom and my stepdad and my little baby brother, and um, he told me that he loved me, uh, and when he told me he loved me for the very first time ever, he reached over and he held my hand. And I know that seems like not much, but to me, it was a really big deal. I'd never had that kind of physical contact like that, you know, with him. And so I was just like, oh, my goodness, you know, like the fire, the fireworks were going off. Right. I mean, <laughs> really. And, and um, I was wearing a, um, a dress, obviously, but it was a white sundress uh, because it was Texas on the 4th of July. It was hot. And I took off my little jacket. So I was sleeveless, which was risque yeah. oh, boy. yes and so i didn't think too much of it i was accustomed to being sleeveless in texas and so um that night though my mom accidentally locked her keys out of the car and what happened was because of this series of events uh, we weren't able to get back to my house until like two o'clock in the morning or something like that and he was with us the whole time and uh, i told my mom about it i said mom he told me he loved me and he held my hand and it was so sweet and all this stuff and she was like okay you know because she didn't really have the same rules that i did but i wanted my mom to know that there had been I wanted the accountability and I wanted her to know that there had been some physical contact and she was like, okay. And then when we got home though, um, this young man was supposed to be staying with my aunt cause you can't stay at the same household. Right. <laughs> and, but because of the situation with the keys, um, we couldn't send him back to her house because it was like two o'clock in the morning. So my mom made the decision. She said, why don't you stay here? at our house and you can sleep on her brother's floor. I had my brother that was um, two years younger than me was there. He'd have been about 18 at the time, 17, something like that. Um, and she said, you can sleep on his bed and the brother will sleep on the floor and it'll be safe that, you know, it'll be good, you know? And uh, I went to sleep and I woke up that night to him in my bedroom, kneeling at my bed, touching me. Um, and I did, I didn't know what to do. I was, I was kind of scared, but I also wasn't scared because this is the man who I've been dating for a year now or almost a year who said he loved me, who had just held my hand and I didn't really know what to do. And as I kind of became, I was on a lot of medication at the time for the migraines. Um, so I slept really hard. Uh, when I kind of started coming to, you know, he began to apologize, like uh, kind of say, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And, um, uh, it'll never happen again. And, um, made me all these promises about how I, I promise, you know, I mean, we shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have done that, but you know, we'll never kiss. We won't kiss until our wedding day. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's saving some things, you know? And uh, so I, I kind of, he confessed at that point in time that it was really, he said it was, 
he was sorry because he'd, but he told me all about like how he'd watched pornography and how he was not a virgin. And then he went on to say how it, it was my fault that it happened because I should not have been wearing that dress. Um, oh my gosh. And I should not have allowed him to hold my hand. And my mother should have never let him stay at my house. And if all those things hadn't happened, then he never would have been in that situation and he wouldn't have had that problem. And I believed him because those are the things that we're told um, to protect ourselves, protect men's eyes, protect their purity. Um, and I obviously didn't do a good job. And because us fine. men are just sex robots who have zero free will and control. Like that was the thing that I was taught too. Like it was this whole like she has to protect you. You got you got it. Like it was never about you need to be sexually chaste. You need to be sexually responsible. You need to control your urges. There's there's never that talk about you protect her from your own urges. There's none of that conversation. It was just her fault. And so then you wonder why there's like sexual problems with men all throughout the IFB yeah. and these other wow. tight, really strict cultures just because of that right there. Yeah. Um, this is not their fault. They can't take responsibility. Why did you let me hold your hand? Why did you try to hold my hand? You you started it. <laughs> I don't even have words. I like I don't know what to say. Like how none of this makes any sense. That well, is her fault. Welcome to the cult, Brian. Welcome to the cult. Oh my god. The, the IFB, that's what, you know, when people are like, oh, so-and-so was sexually assaulted, and uh, then people are like, well, what are you wearing? That actually, that meme is actually the IFB. Oh. <laughs> well, so. She's worse. lucky to be with him. Oh, Good great. There, it gets worse. Okay. Oh, I'm going to need therapy after this conversation. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> wow. So, you're, you're bringing up a lot of old stuff that I forgot about, and now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. So keep going. So in the purity culture vein here, yeah, it gets worse. Um, so... Yeah, it, it was. I was. I believed that it was my fault because of the things that he said, and um, because of the way that I was being talked to by dating counselors and him, that I was uh, a risk um, to date because of my family, uh, that I would have a hard time with commitment, and that I might not be spiritual enough, and all that kind of stuff um, to be on the mission field one day, and all the things that they would say. I was like, I buckled down. I'm like, I am going to prove all of them wrong. I'm good enough. Rather than asking myself for one second whether or not he was good enough for me, I was all about, yeah. am I good enough for him? And uh, that's because my value, I thought, was going to be found in the quality of man that I married. And since everybody told me this is quality man, he's godly because he was doing the things that they measured godliness by. He carried a big Bible. He preached on the bus routes. He, you know, he was a bus captain. He did all the right things, you know, and, you know, he was, he had this... He just had the right aura, I guess. I don't know, you know, of, of fundamentalism that just was everything they were looking for. And uh, they they really wanted me to be with him. And uh, so I, it was six more months that we were together. It was miserable um, because he really changed after that because I think he resented. He, he acted like he resented me for tarnishing him. <laughs> And um, even though he already admitted to you that he's not a virgin, he's clearly acted yeah. out freely other times, even right. in that mindset. <laughs> so he yeah. put on the purity culture mindset, he is the tarnished one, right? Yes, but in the purity culture, <laughs> men are never tarnished, it's only the women. Um, for instance, there was a sermon preached that year in chapel, and um, the man who preached the sermon, he took a candy bar, and he, you know, it was one of those, who wants this candy bar? And all the, everybody in the college, oh, I want it, you know? And then he opens it up, and he, you know, kind of like touches it, and he's like, now who wants it? And he put it next to his lips, and now who wants it? And, you know, most people 
didn't really want it after that. And then, you know, but there were a few weirdos out there. They're like, oh, I still want it. You know, he takes that candy wrap, <laughs> he unwraps it, and he literally, like, shoves it down his throat in a nasty way. And he then he pulls it back out, and he's like, now who wants it? And uh, there was a few people who were just gross who were like, oh, yeah, they were just wanting attention. But, like, then he talked about purity after that. And he said that this is girls this is you when you take off your clothes um you're less desirable from here on out and then it was when you let men touch you then you know you're less desirable the only person who wants this candy bar now he said is me and the message was really clear to those of us girls and that is that if a man sees you in a sexually vulnerable way or if he um touches you you belong to him now because nobody else will ever want you. And that was the message um, that I heard. <laughs> I don't know if that was really what he was trying to say, but it sure felt like that was what he was trying to say. And after what had happened to me that summer, I believed that was true. If anybody ever knew, if I ever told anybody, then I would never be wanted again. Uh, my value was completely in my body um, and my body was tainted and tarnished. And so I didn't, I knew I had to be with him and um, it was, it was miserable. Uh, he, he knew that too, because all the guys who were predators and bad guys, they understood at that message. If I touch her, she's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was, yeah. If I touch her, she's mine because no one else will want her. And she'll, and so that's, that was really the underlying message. And that wasn't a one-time thing. This was a message that was heard many times and people use other illustrations, gum and, teacups and pieces of paper and and i mean roses with petals and things i mean there's other ones too but the candy bar was pretty gross <laughs> but um pretty graphic that's disgusting yep i'm with yeah. you uh yeah but uh eventually my mental health just couldn't take him anymore um and really i i began to break down and the day that i really broke i talked to my dad believe it or not and i started to tell my dad that some of the controlling things that he was saying. And I just kind of let it slip that, that he was saying that I was a high risk date because uh, of my parentage. And my dad did not take that well. <laughs> so he was like, <laughs> because, you know, my dad was all about his appearance and nobody mm -hmm. knew, was supposed to know what he had done anyway. And so the fact that he was being thrown under the bus in that way and the, the dating counselor was basically taking his position that he was supposed to be the dad and his power. And when I finally kind of told my kind of stuff to my dad, kind of trying to get a second opinion from him, he was like, oh, no, you should break up with that guy and don't listen to that counselor anymore and that kind of stuff. And so it was almost like a power struggle between the, the different. Um, but my heart belonged to my, you know, I really wanted my dad's love and affection. And so I was much more keen on listening to him than any dating counselor if I could get his love. And so I finally needed that. I got the approval that I needed to step away from that because I could not on my own say I want out of this relationship. I had to have someone's approval. That was just how I believed at the time. Like I had to have a dating counselor or a father or somebody who was supposed to be over me and protecting me had to tell me it was okay and that I could leave because otherwise I didn't think I could. I didn't believe I had that, the ability to make that decision on my own. And so having my dad tell me, it's okay, you can leave, you need to leave. Um, I did. I, that, I literally just up and left <laughs> like that, that that night that that guy was having like a devotional with me we were sitting in like a, a lobby with his bible open and he was telling me he was going through passages about how i was a um oh it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman or something like that and so he was saying how that's me and um how 
I was this horrible woman, less dropping this contentious woman and all this stuff. And that I needed to get myself under control and um, just all this stuff. And I just was like, I'm done with you. I think I actually swore at him and I still don't swear, but I actually did swear. (laughs) And then I just stomped off and left. And um, he didn't believe it. I really don't think he believed that I had actually done it. And uh, because I mean, I we argued for months since the incident. And um, when I when I broke up with him, uh, I never looked back. Like I never even he began then um, a campaign of stalking on campus. So of course uh, phone calls and the text messages and you know all these different things um, he began following me around the campus uh, he knew my class schedule he would wait outside of my doors uh, my classes and then like walk and try to talk to me along the hallways and things um, and I would try to get escorts of course I I didn't want to tell anybody about what had happened that summer because I didn't want to get expelled and I didn't want everybody to know of my shame because I thought it was my shame and uh when he finally got the hint, I started dating my husband <laughs> and um, my husband and I got close actually because of his stalking. I would ask my husband to like walk with me to classes to kind of protect me, <laughs> you know, so that I wouldn't have to deal with this guy. Um, he would, it was pretty hardcore stalking. Like he would, if I would sit in church, he would sit like one pew behind me or one pew across from me and watch me the whole time. Or like if I would go down to the altar to pray, he would follow me behind me. And then when I was praying, he would kneel beside me and start talking to me or whispering like prayers about how I needed to come back. Um, It was creepy, really creepy. Uh, He would follow me in Chicago to my bus route where we weren't supposed to be intermixed. um, And he would like, he drove the bus. And so he would drive the bus there and like um, park it right in front of the door where I was soul winning. So I'd be like up on the platform and then I couldn't come down because he'd be waiting at the bottom of the steps. And he like, broke his wrist or something punching through a wall because uh, he was angry at me um just i was really scared of him uh but yeah gavin and i got a lot closer through all that because obviously he wanted to help me stay safe um he didn't know about everything well when this guy finally figured out that i wasn't coming back he went and saw jack scop uh who was the chancellor <laughs> yeah we all know what happened to him <laughs> but he went <laughs> Went and saw Jack Scott, and he told the whole story about that summer. Of course, he told it from his perspective, but he told the story, and then um, because he thought, well, I mean, if you touch it, you buy it, basically, right? And so he thought, if I tell everybody what happened, they'll make her come back. And um, they tried. They tried to make me come back. Um, they pulled me into a disciplinary committee. I didn't know that any of this had happened, but um, I got like, they would do like all this cloak and dagger stuff at Hiles Anderson where they would like send you like a little official call slip. Like they'd bring, they'd have a little messenger, like bring it to you in a random class and you'd get like a little slip of paper and it would say, you know, to show up at a meeting at this time. And you're like, okay. And I, I had to skip a class in order to go show up at this meeting in the uh, Dean of Women's office. And she grilled me about this whole situation and told me what was happening. And I was like, what? And so, I mean, of course, I told my side of the story and she's like, well, you were playing with fire that night. You didn't understand what you were doing, but, you know, it was your fault. You should never have done that, you know, never have dressed that way, never have invited him into your home, never let him hold your hand, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, she's like, I believe you that you didn't want this to happen, but you didn't understand what you were doing. And uh, so she, I don't know, she, she wanted to advocate for me. But right after the meeting with her, I was called into a disciplinary committee. 
and that would take place during chapel. Like I said, it was all very cloak and dagger. Like I wasn't allowed to tell anybody. Nobody knew where I was. So I was supposed to sit with my husband for chapel that day on a date, go to lunch together. And I was just going to like stand him up, like not be there. Right. <laughs> because, and that oh, was yeah. like, so he didn't, he wouldn't even know where I was. And um, I, I was scared to tell him where I was because now he's going to know. And we'd only been dating for a few, maybe a couple of weeks at that point in time. So this is a really new relationship, but like, I was scared. Like as soon as Gavin finds out, he won't want me anymore. Um, I was so scared. Uh, of course, I was scared I was going to get expelled. I was scared of the shame. I was scared like getting expelled like basically means you're homeless and you get stuck out on the street curb somewhere. And how do I get home? My dad's not going to come and get me. How do I get to an airport so that mom can fly me home? Like what would happen? I was all the anxiety, right? I was yeah. 20. I was almost. I was. I think I was almost 20 at the time. I was 20. Yeah. And um, I just yeah. So they pulled me into, I mean, this all happened within like an hour and a half, um, just a few months after I'd broken up with that guy. And uh, they pulled me into, this is how they did disciplinary committee there. There would be like a room in the basement, like dark, and a panel of men, only men, around a long like conference table. They were all seated and they had me stand in front of the table and um, they just started asking me questions. They're like, is it true that you allowed this young man to stay at your house? Is it true that you, um, that he touched you? And then they wanted to know all the details. I had to say everything out loud. Like, where did he touch you? How did he touch you? How did you feel when he touched you? Oh my you know, God. Like, I mean, they would ask me all of that and I had to say it all to them. Um, I think the Dean of Women stood behind me perhaps, or she might've been outside the door because I remember being alone, but I think they might've had a lady in the back, like somewhere, but I was a girl all by myself with like eight men, you know, 40 and up all sitting around this table in a dark room. And, uh, it was terrifying. And also uh, asking you about like physical slash sexual experiences. Yeah. That's like super, super creepy. That's exactly the phrase I was going to use. It's super yeah. creepy. It, it sounds it was. like, I didn't uh, yeah. realize it was creepy. I was just really scared. Um, yeah, my that's what they, said, I mean, similar approaches at crown and at Fairhaven. So, yeah. Anyway, keep going. I'm I sorry. just wish, I hope that when that dude was following you around, if you were just like grabbing by the shore, like, look, I was, I was taking a big risk dating you, and I just decided it wasn't worth the worth the risk anymore. <laughs> like, just let him eat his own dog food for a second, because obviously he was the one that was not deserving of you, <laughs> and was super weird. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Seriously. But yeah, they. They decided after listening to my side of the story that they're like, what they basically said was, we believe both of you are telling the, you know, we're going to believe both of you. You have a good track record. You've been a good girl. And he's, you know, Mr. Wonderful. So he's obviously telling the truth too. So, you know, they're basically like, we're going to believe you both. And uh, since there was uh, an overnight stay, we're going to expel you both. I think they did, but they didn't really expel us because they liked us. And then, you know what I mean? Like we were there, one of their shiny people. So they didn't really <laughs> want us to go. So they were like, what we're going to do is we want to protect his relationship and or his uh, reputation and yours. So um, we'd really like you to get back together. And I was like, absolutely, oh my gosh. absolutely not. Um, and I tried to explain to them that he'd been stalking me and asked them to help me and all this stuff. But they were like, well, we're sorry, but that's kind of your fault. Once a man has been physical with a woman, he he has a physical urge of ownership over her. Um, that's something you invited in. Um, and I was just like, oh, uh, I couldn't I couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't do anything about it. Like his desire 
towards me was my was just a thing that he had we couldn't help that you know because there had been something physical there was just no helping it like that's just the way that it is and um so i just kind of had to deal with the stalking and the the stuff so they they offered after a few months uh, after a few more weeks later and it continued to go on they did offer like a slight thing they told him hey leave her alone and uh she doesn't want to get back together with you after all. And, uh, you know, and then they also told him like, how about she goes to a different bus division and you can go to a different Sunday school division. And that way you guys aren't in the same ministries together. And that would help not to have as much confrontation. So they kind of sorted it a little bit there, but not much. What really took help, what I needed from there was I finally, I told my dad <laughs> again, uh, what was happening. And, uh, when he learned that, they weren't doing anything. Uh, he did actually take me seriously at that point in time. I don't know if it was the cop in him or if he just wanted to have a, exert some little level of revenge or control over the college. But he called the college up and told them that if they didn't um, do something, that he was going to get a personal protective order for me and uh, that he was going to contact the news and the police would be there to arrest that guy or something along those lines. I don't know. It was some kind of drama. <laughs> but like, whatever he said, it was enough to get them to at least call him off mostly wow. but it's still uh, weird to me that all these adults were like involved in your dating life they're like hey you should date him so oh, they were date him. very involved you should still date him that's like normal for the ifb that's bro so weird remember like i was dating callie and they disapproved they tried to make it hell yeah, for me and her right yeah so no they yeah. were very very involved like we don't we don't do arranged marriages but it's just like dating is. by committee right <laughs> Yeah, um, so we took a I vote. Did, You're but, together now. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it was it was weird, because <laughs> I didn't ask anybody's permission about dating my husband. Um, I just we just started dating, and I at that point I was broken. I was done with them. I was like, I don't. I tried to fit your mold, and it's not working. So I was like, I'm just gonna date yeah. this guy. Um, I liked him because one of the things I liked about him was that he didn't really. He was. He was cool with like speaking his mind, you know, he would say what he believed and thought, even if it was something negative. And I was like, wow, shocking. I've never heard anybody do this before. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's so refreshing. <laughs> uh, he had a really unique perspective on life because of his own testimony. Uh, he just, he was really comfortable just being himself. And I, it was very refreshing to me. And uh, I, I loved that. He was not interested in controlling me. And I didn't know what to do about that because I was so so used to somebody who wanted to control me. I was basically like, here I am. Tell me what shape you want me to be. And they would, somebody else would shape me and I would fit the mold because that's what I was used to doing was people pleasing to the point where I didn't even know who I was unless somebody was telling me what to be. And uh, usually it was my dad, then it was the college, then it was the boy I was dating. And now here I am all alone and I don't know what, nobody wants to control me, you know, and I wasn't sure what to do with that. Um, he was like, no, I just like you. And I'm like, yeah, well, who am I? <laughs> I didn't know. And it was it was tough uh, for me. Um, he just really wasn't interested. I mean, I tried to make him control me. I tried to make him like step up and be be a leader, right? You know, be a, <laughs> be a spiritual leader here. Tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you want to be. Tell me what pacing you want. I mean, all these things. But he really just was like, eh. 
It's like, not my job. It's like, it's like a true masculine approach right there. Like, the IFB is so confused. Like, all right, masculinity is all about control and power. Real masculinity? I don't care what you do. I'm, I'm having a fine time over here. You go. No, <laughs> true masculinity. Yeah. Comfort. I did. I would, I would ask him, like, the purity culture part. I would ask, you know, because they would tell us, you know, ask the man you're dating um, and ask your future husband, what do you, he prefer you to wear? How does he prefer you to color, to do your hair? What does he prefer about your makeup? All these things, you know. And so there were girls all over the campus who, oh, well, my boyfriend says I can't wear makeup. And so they wouldn't wear makeup. Or, you know, my boyfriend says I'm not allowed to wear high heels, so they can't wear high heels. Or whatever. All kinds of fashion decisions being made dictated by boyfriends because they had power over us like that. Um, I forgot about that stuff. Oh, anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I asked Gavin, I was like... <laughs> I would ask him, I'm like, well, what do you want me to wear? What's your favorite thing that I wear that you want me to wear? You know, because I want to be pleasing, you know, because that's what we were trained to be. And I know that sounds really sick. I want to be pleasing, but it's like, that's what I wanted because um, that's what made me desirable, right? Was pleasing somebody else. And uh, he was like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> after, after a lot of pressure and I kept like pressuring him for answers, he finally told me like, well, I really prefer when you wear um, dresses uh, versus skirts and tops or suits. Like the lady, a lot of the girls would wear like these suits, you know, like the little businessy looking straight pencil skirts with a little sports jackets and stuff. And so I was like, oh, okay. So basically I threw out all my clothes <laughs> except for my dresses. <laughs> 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 and, I, and then he's like, uh, and then after like much pressure, I was like, oh, you know, well, what, what colors do you prefer? And he's like, oh, I really like bright colors. So I'm like, okay. So, I mean, I stopped wearing black or gray or brown. And uh, I mean, like, that's how strong the desire was to please um, for me and many other girls. Not everybody was like that, but a lot of us were. And uh, I was just, it was so silly because it was like, you know, that's, that was not what he meant when he said he liked me in a dress or what he liked me in a bright color. But I just took it and ran because it was like, here <laughs> You know? <laughs> He's so like, I, I don't know, dresses or something, and you're like, okay, everything else gone. <laughs> <laughs> Again, a true dude, right? Yeah. True guy. I don't care what you do. <laughs> yeah. It was the same thing with like hair. You know, it was like, well, what do you like? You know, how do you? Because we were told to ask these questions. You know, like, oh, well, you know, I like your hair long. I guess you know, it's nice when it's down. And I'm like, okay, I'll never wear it up again. No more buns. <laughs> no more French braids. No more. Not. It was like it was so it was so dumb, but like. That was how I would thought. That was my thought process. But during our continued dating that he and I would go, um, I would go one more semester at college, but um, that guy would continue to stalk me the entire time. But it was low key, like small enough that uh, it could go under the radar for the staff and faculty. Um, but it was really hard because the secret expulsion that they did, I was not allowed to speak of the incident to anybody. I couldn't tell anybody about the mental anxiety I was going through with him because of that, I couldn't talk about uh, the expulsion. And the expulsion meant that what they decided to do was they took retroactively all of my credits from the previous semester and they just disappeared them. So they're like, all of your credits, the classes that you passed and paid for already, we're just gonna pretend they didn't happen. And next semester you can re-enroll for all of those classes and pay for them again and you can take them again. And that's what we'll call your expulsion. And I accepted that bargain because I was too scared to be expelled, expelled, and I didn't want my shame to be known. And it seemed like a safe option to uh, protect my reputation and to uh, not be homeless. <laughs> so <laughs> um, as the next semester would go on and my husband and I were dating, I, I 
drew deeper and deeper into depression and um, I couldn't go to classes anymore. I wasn't, the teachers would ask me, my friends would ask me, didn't you just take that class? You know, weren't you just in here last semester? I thought you passed this class. And, and I was like, I wasn't allowed to tell them why I was back in the class. So it was constant like pressure on me. Um, and I just, I just withdrew more and more. Um, I was already sick often enough, you know, with the anxiety attacks and the passing out and the things that were happening, the migraines. But um, so we were only allowed to have um, like two or three absences in a class. So if you had more than that, then you would fail the class. So I was already really struggling with absences because of my sickness. Um, we weren't allowed to have anxiety. So you know how that is, like you're not allowed to have anxiety. So I had a doctor diagnose me with anxiety, but I didn't believe him. I was like, oh no, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I'm happy. <laughs> I was like, you don't, you don't understand. You know, I have Jesus and I'm happy, you know, and I love my life and God is good and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I can't have anxiety. And uh, it has to be something medically wrong with me. Physically has to be wrong. That's why I'm physically passing out. And you know, he's like, no, I think you're having anxiety attacks. Uh, it's, you know, you may also have, and you know, they diagnosed me with the other things like a, like just basically fainting spells, which is vasal vagal syncope, which it's like, that just means you faint. Like, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, which, I mean, I was underweight and anemic and, and under deep stress here at this place and all that stuff. I worked um, in the office of the vice president uh, as one of his scholarship girls, which is an unpaid position, but you get room and board. Um, so you work 20 hours a week um, for your room and board, but you don't get any actual money uh I don't know. It was weird, but <laughs> I did um, scholar or did secretarial work for him uh, and his wife, actually. So that was my job. But I just grew more and more depressed as time went on, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And finally, I just was like, "I'm I'm done. I'm out. I'm leaving." I called my mom and asked her to get me a ticket, and I left. I didn't even say I didn't say goodbye to anybody. I didn't tell him. I just packed my bags <laughs> and I left. It was probably the first real decision I made all by myself. And that was a big milestone for me because, uh, like I said, most of these other decisions, I, I let somebody else have say so. Um, but that one, I did not. That one, I was just like, bye, I'm out of here. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Y'all crazy. I'm out. <laughs> um, That's why I did a Fairhaven. Yeah. Anyway, I, I literally did the same thing. I was like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So Gavin and eventually, uh, we, I thought he would propose before I left college at Christmas, but because I was leaving in January, and he did not, and that broke my heart. And but apparently, Come on, he, Gavin. <laughs> apparently he did have the ring, and he just wasn't like it just wasn't the right time, I guess, or he hadn't like, decided he was ready to call my scary father and ask permission. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was exactly, but like he ended up proposing in February, and we got engaged. And, and but my dad's caveat to whether or not he would allow me to marry was that Gavin had to promise that he would take me back to Hiles Anderson College to finish my degree. So Gavin promised that just to get my hand in marriage. But I was like, I was mad because at that point in time, I was beginning to like, like the idea of making my own decisions. And I'm like, excuse you, that wasn't your decision to make. But like, <laughs> you can but, pick my dresses, <laughs> not college. <laughs> right. Well, he'd been letting me have a longer leash, if you will. And I was getting used to standing on my own. So yeah, it was Gavin was safe for me to say things to and to stand up to and all that. And so I began to be like, Hey, I can, I can assert myself with this person and it's safe. And I, yeah, it was it was nice to have somebody like that, obviously. But um, yeah, I did get to get married. Oh, yay. <laughs> and uh, at marriage, there was a whole drama there, too, because uh, my dad said he wouldn't walk me down the aisle, 
which to every IFB girl, that's just the hugest slap in the face. Um, wouldn't walk me down the aisle because I'd left Tyles Anderson without his permission. Oh, good grief. <laughs> and, the place um, that he threatened to call the police on. <laughs> yeah. But I'd left without his blessing. And um, not only did I leave without his blessing, but I went to my mom, mm. which was the place I wasn't supposed to go. So I should have gone back to him, apparently. Not that he had a place for me to live because he'd, I didn't have a room there or any of my stuff there or anything like that. So Because he basically stopped being my dad when I turned 18. So what was, I don't know why he thought I would run back to him. But, I mean, yeah. he, made it, he made it pretty clear that he wasn't interested in being daddy anymore. So... I don't know where else was it supposed to go, but he didn't want to be daddy anymore. And he didn't want to walk me down the aisle, which really broke my heart. And, uh, I found a way to get him to walk me down, but it was, it was really a heartbreaking moment for me. And, uh, just really hard. Uh, I don't remember exactly how I had to cajole and beg and plead and cry. I don't really remember it. Another repressed memory for me, but I did get him to walk me down the aisle. I did get married, but, <laughs> but, uh, um, I did believe it or not go back to Hiles Anderson. So you did, I did after six months. Um, but see, there was this desire to prove myself like I can do it. I'm not a quitter. I can finish. I can show all of them that I didn't walk away from the faith. Like they all thought I did when I left school, they all thought that I'd apostate, you know, that I was (laughs) a bad person, that I was living in horrible sin and all these things. And it was just like, no, look, see, here I am. I'm still a person. I'm still love the Lord. I'd still, I still can finish school. I'm just married now. And I thought maybe being married would offer me like a new uh, protection, an identity that maybe they wouldn't pick on me in the same way. Does that make sense? And uh, I thought, you know, cause marriage is value. I'm married now. That means my I'm important. I have status. And so it didn't. <laughs> they still submitted me to all the same dress checks and all the same things. And only now I was with the married students and I could see how they body shamed pregnant women and uh, talked about our bodies, um, breasts and pregnant bellies and all that stuff. And I was 21 watching these other 21, 22 year old girls be shamed for having pregnant bellies that protruded a little too far or for having um engorged breasts because they were breastfeeding and they were just pick on us and i just remember thinking this is wrong it was like kind of the first time that i really thought this is wrong like it's one thing to sexualize my body when i was you know 19 20 and you know all this stuff but it's like these are married women who are bearing children and they were still being sexualized and i think that was a wake-up call for me to realize that like even our pregnant bodies were sexualized and I, I watched a, a former roommate of mine be dressed down for told the things that she was wearing. And they would touch our bodies um, when they would dress check us. They would touch us in certain places and show us where exactly something cupped or moved or whatever. And they would check our underwear um, to make sure that they were the right style, <laughs> um, to make sure that they weren't too, you know, I don't know, risque or that they weren't, or that we were, some of us were required to, some girls that were heavier were required to wear um, girdles. Um, So they would check that we were wearing a girdle sometimes, or that you had control top hosiery on. If you weren't quite heavy enough to need a girdle, they would have us wear control top hosiery. Uh, All that was part of that purity culture and that, uh, that, that, but it's like, it's not really purity culture because it was also about sexualization of our bodies. And it was a very confusing message. but going back as a married woman um, and seeing that, that that was a big thing for me. And then um, when my wedding photos came in and Gavin and I got our wedding album, I was so excited to show off my album, show all my friends, like, look, here's my wedding, here's my wedding dress and all that stuff. I got called into um, that same former man who wanted to be my counselor, who I had not asked his 
counselor permission in oh, almost a, a year, he called me into his office and he had um, my album. Uh, so I don't know exactly how he got my album, but I had handed it to a friend who must have taken it to another person who tattled about it and brought it to his attention. And they took my album and he told me, don't ever bring this back on campus. This is soft porn. What? And, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. He wouldn't open it up to show me because he wouldn't look at it because he was a godly man. <laughs> but, um, but after he had I, looked at it, though, <laughs> I don't know if, if it was my wedding gown that was the thing because it was sleeveless because I got married in Texas in August or if it was because of um, the other sleeveless sundresses that the bridesmaids were wearing. Because again, I got married in Texas in August and we had a garden wedding, which was really stupid, but yeah, it was hot. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, but most people were sleeveless. Um, a lot of tops that were more than four fingers from the clavicle. So that, I guess that could be it. I'm not entirely sure because we were all wearing skirts and dresses that were below the knees, but they were sleeveless, I guess, which I, I really don't understand why it was porn, but they said it was, and I could never bring it back. And um, that was the end for me. I was like, you know what? I'm, do I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I'm out again. I did like, <laughs> Look, dude, I, the guy that you wanted me to date was actually looking at porn. Right. <laughs> That's actual porn. This is, I, I'm not kidding. Like, this is how Fairhaven was, too. There's so many different situations, too. Like, I remember there's a girl. Um, I was going to ask to a date situation. Like it's not, it wasn't like, it was like my friend was going with his, his lady friend who they were actually dating. And like, she had a sister and I was like, and I, was, I don't know who, who she's going to go with. And I was like, I'll ask her to go. Cause you're supposed to, the man's supposed to ask. Right. And I was like, I'll ask her to go, but we'll just like go as friends. Like no big deal. But that way we could like all hang out. It'd be fun. Um, and, uh, so, but you had to talk to the dad. So I found the dad at Fairhaven and I was like, hey, just so you know, Mr. So-and-so, um, I was wondering if it'd be okay if I invited your daughter to go with me to Christmas lights, which is what it's called, which downtown Chicago, this whole thing. Oh, we did um, Christmas lights too. <laughs> hey. Um, and he was like, yeah, he's like, oh, that's pretty fine. And then I didn't realize this, but he was like super excited about it and like really encouraging and pushing her to like go with me. And like date me and like the whole night. So every time I show up to just be like, hey, yo, you want to go with me? To She disappeared. Like she'd look at me and look panicked and bolt the other direction. And I've only spoken like a few words to this girl, just usually in general. I'm just usually hanging out with my buddy who was with his. You're just like looking at your shirt like, is there something on me? Yeah, literally like, what is happening? I finally got to like hunt her down because at this point I was just like, what is happening? So I was like. Hey, did you just like, uh, no. And I was like, okay, cool. Are you good? Like, I was just like, like that's nothing. Like, Someone going after you? Yeah, like, I'm you like, just so you know, it is nothing like that. Because I know how weird that place was. And I found out later on that that basically what you were going through is what she was going through. But they were like, you need to be with Will. Um, right. And like, bro, I literally just so asked to go as a friend. And right. they're basically there like is so much pressure on the dating there, like so much pressure. I mean, I feel bad. I've almost actually tried to like look her up before, like since then, like and just like message her, be like, "Yo, how you're doing?" And I'm, by the way, I now have so much more clarity about everything. Like, are you okay? Like, there's she's a whole like, group, I should have married there, you. There's a whole group of <laughs> IFB people that have left. Come join us. It's okay. We're we're all damaged over oh here, goodness. but the water's fine. Oh yeah, I mean. <laughs> 
and as far as the college experience, I mean, there's so many things I could talk about there as far as the anxiety attacks, the fainting spells, uh, just the, the ministry stuff that we went through there, the, the standards of ministry. But I think you've talked about a lot of that in the past, mm -hmm. uh, bus ministry and that kind of thing. So I won't get into that. So, <laughs> so you ended up, so you ended up leaving the college at this point and you're married to Gavin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, at this point, you kind of must take off on life a little bit. So now you mentioned a couple years ago, your dad passed and that there was a time of leaving the IFB. Um, are, are you able to, are we able to fast forward to that? Or is there some crucial things in between? No, you could, I could pretty much fast forward to that. Cause it's like, we were pretty shell shocked for about four years after leaving that whole situation in college. Um, we kind of just like went back to Gavin's home church and just kind of like, I don't know, we're wallflowers. I don't know if that makes sense that we just didn't, didn't really do anything. Uh, we were faithful. We served in the areas they let us serve, but that was about it. And I had my first daughter there. Um, things were pretty good for me, but I, everything was repressed. I never dealt with anything, anything, nothing from the past, not my dad's situation, the divorce, the not none of the traumas, uh, not, none of that. I just, I was like, whoo, I'm out of here. I'm free. Let's just push it all down deep and just move on. Right. And that was my tactic at the time. And that would continue to be how I dealt with it all for the next, I don't know, 14 years. Um, is basically just don't look back, just pretend that didn't happen and move on with your life. Um, we would move on by leaving any church that was associated with Hiles Anderson. We basically were like, let's leave that. That's gotta be the problem. It's not the IFB. It's not fundamentalism. It's not King James onlyism. It's none of that. It's just anything associated with Hiles or scup so as long as we're not in that circle we'll be okay so basically we moved bubbles or camps if you will out of that camp into a new camp and we thought that was the answer and so we ended up coming to texas um and uh about 10 years ago we got into another ifb church that was like oh no we don't like Hiles. we don't associate with them um they did like sexton and uh fugate I think oh yeah they, they were more in that camp so we were like well Okay, you know, they were kind of almost enemies with Hiles, and uh, so <laughs> we must be in safe territory, right? And so we thought we were good there, but like we would, Gavin and I would go on to serve um, at that church uh, as lay people, but um, essentially as unpaid children's ministers. Uh, we did a lot of work there. And uh, I directed a children's choir, I played the piano, I served in the nursery, we, we did, I, I taught Sunday school, I taught a children's Bible study. Uh, sang in the choir. I mean, I did all of these things all at the same time, right? <laughs> and that's how it goes, right? And and of course, my husband did too, and he did all kinds of maintenance work, and I went to women's visitation, and we just all the things. And you know, eventually, he becomes a deacon. I mean, it was it was a lot. We were very very involved in this church. We loved this church, and we thought we were safe here. And uh, then, eventually, uh, things kind of started coming. We had a, a youth pastor uh, who. Uh, was wrongfully fired basically it, long story short he was he started asking the questions uh mm -hmm. especially about king james uh bible um things like that and uh, some of the stuff some of the, a lot of the missionaries we were supporting and evangelists he started like pointing out he actually got us listening to um the rfp and the church split and uh he got us listening to and asking some of those questions ourselves and he got us listening to preacher boys um which helped i was like when i heard some of those stories that was the first time that I began to confront some of my past was um, the Preacher Boys podcast and listening to the girls tell their stories. And I was like, oh, it was wrong. What happened to me was wrong. What happened to me was not my fault. What happened to me was abuse. And mm -hmm. I, I had never put a label on it. I had never, I tried to not think about it, all that stuff. And it was like, when I heard other people's stories, I finally realized that it was wrong 
And, and it wasn't my fault. And I didn't have to bear that shame at all. It was never mine to bear. And um, that was huge for me um, as well. But then um, when he was fired over the King James only kind of stuff, and there were, there were other idiosyncrasies to his story, but like, that was a big thing. Like really when my husband and I just were like, we need to get out, 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 like out of the IFB. But then we kind of had this idea that maybe we could stay and God could use us to help bring change in unity and uh, help teach the people a better way. But that's not, that's not okay. Like they don't let you do that in the IFB. Like basically we began to be shunned and ostracized from our community um, slowly, but surely they just kind of pushed us and pushed us. We were all alone. Um, Every Sunday on the way to church, we would listen to casting. We started giving ourselves permission to listen to some music, right? <laughs> we never, we, didn't, we started um, listening to Casting Crowns. I know, so bad. <laughs> we, edgy, edgy. Another Christian music band. <laughs> Dance it on the line, man. <laughs> That was like, oh my goodness, but we even let our kids listen to it. And uh, one of the songs that really hit me was that um, Thrive. Um, you know, we were made for so much more than just surviving. It's thriving. And I was like, we are just surviving here at this church. We're not thriving. We're not growing. We're not, you know, and it was just one of those every Sunday we would, that was kind of like our family song on the way to church. And I was like, it just happened to be the one I, I don't know if he did it on purpose, my husband, or if he like, if it just happened to be the first one on the track when he would put it in, but it was what started up in the car every Sunday when we would get in the car together. And I was like, it just kept like hitting us. Like we got to get out of here. And uh, yeah, we did end up hearing, there was a whole drama going on with children's church and the way they were pushing us out of things like children's ministry and stuff. They, they had a teenage boy, like in charge of that children's church and like, he he's a good boy and i love him but he he was not qualified to be teaching a children's church all by himself with no curriculum and nobody in there to help him i mean he was you know he was he had just graduated from high school he was gonna go to bible college and they were like here here's 30 kids for you to teach and all by yourself you know like, good luck yeah. <laughs> you know they're like we're not even gonna give you a curriculum guide or anything you come up with whatever the holy spirit tells you you're a preacher boy like you know whatever you want to preach and and uh just all kinds of stuff was going on in there. And I mean, he was a boy that I had mentored in my children's choir for many years. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to come in here and kind of listen. Cause I was teaching a children's Bible study on uh, Wednesdays and he was one of my helpers in there. And I was like, how about I come in and, you know, sit in and listen and just cause, but mostly as a mom, I wanted to make sure that somebody, a lady was in there with all of these kids, not just this teenage boy all by himself, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, there was no camera. There was no, there was nothing. And I was like, I'm not comfortable with that. And so I went in there as I had little girls and my little boy in there. And I was like, oh, I think, I think there needs to be somebody oversight. Right. And so he didn't mind. I would stay in there and I would oversight, but the pastor's wife minded. She didn't like that. Somebody um, stepped outside of what, I don't know she wanted or what she what her husband hadn't told me to do and so like that was one of the big issues um she's like why do you keep going over there because they wanted me to sing in the choir and i was like well i'm sorry i have to go to junior church you're not on the schedule you don't belong over there i mean it was just all kinds of stupid <laughs> altercations like that um and then since then, then they're like well since you're not singing in the choir you can't sing specials anymore and so i wasn't allowed to sing specials anymore I mean, it was drama but you know they still wanted me to play the piano but you know, I can't sing specials anymore. And I guess I quit oh the choir, goodness. even though I didn't mean to quit the choir. It was drama, drama, drama. And like, it, it just all kinds of little things like that. And this is all happening during that six months. And finally, we were just that sun. There was a Sunday where they basically just put their foot down and they're like, you are not allowed to go into the children's department anymore. You're not welcome in there. You cannot go in there. And I was like, okay, well, then my kids won't be going to children's church. And so we pulled our kids out of children's church that Sunday. And it was a big thing because it's a small church. And um, we, 
I had brought my kids, my husband worked sound booth, so I went over and got my kids from Sunday school classes and brought them into the service with me and didn't put them in children's church, which everybody put their kids in children's church. So it was a big, like, spectacle, <laughs> you know? And uh, that afternoon I went home and I was like, we can't do this, Gavin. I cannot live this way anymore. The anxiety attacks were coming back. Um, every time I would get to church, you know, the heart palpitations, the shortness of breath, I, I was, we would stand to pray and I would feel myself start to back out and I would have to grab the pew in front of me. I couldn't handle being there anymore. And, um, and so we went back that Sunday night going, we're, we're going to do something. And that Sunday night, it was like the Lord gave us like the kick in the pants that we needed to get out of there because that Sunday night, the pastor was like, we're going to have, I'm so excited about this, you know, this conference that I'm going to go speak at. And he's like, I'm going to be speaking with my good friend, Mike Ray. I don't know if you know who Mike Ray is, but he's a Hiles Anderson graduate who um, covered the sexual abuse of many girls in his church um, that were abused by his son-in-law, um, Eric something. I don't know his last name, but he's hiding over there with Clarence Sexton right now. Uh, but anyway, if you don't want those names in there, that's fine. But I, I'm just saying, like, it was one of those things, like, to us, we were like, oh, okay, so we're running in this circle. We're back in the mm -hmm. Hiles circle again, you know? And I was like, we left the Hiles circle. We're not sticking around for you to be buddies with people who cover sexual abuse like that and for you to stand up on conferences and say this is my good friend when we all know what he's done i mean there's like court record about it not this isn't hearsay i mean there was verifiable like there's stuff there that you can see i mean there's video footage of the uh the pastor's business meeting and all that stuff so it's not like oh you're just gossip you don't know what you're talking about and it was but they would just tell me we were fault finders whenever we brought that kind of stuff up you're, you're being divisive you're fault finder you're you're gossiping you're not sharing positive news um you need to get in step with the program you're not on the same page as the rest of the church all that kind of stuff they would say and uh we were just like, yeah, we're out. We're done. You know, we're not sure where we're going, but we're out of here. <laughs> we didn't yeah. know there was, at that point in time, we were still pretty much in that idea that like there really wasn't a good church. The IFB was the only real church, right? And so we thought, I guess we didn't know where we were going to go. Like, what do we have to do? Like start our own home church? Like there's, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, but we were beginning to understand like, cause that youth pastor who had left before us, he had kind of um, broken the way for the path for us. You know, he'd found a church and, had done some research and things and we were like, Oh, okay. So they became really good friends for us and um, they had been all along, but um, they, uh, they helped us navigate that. But like I said, I left in, we left in September on my birthday. Um, and uh, so my first Sunday out of that church was my birthday. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my goodness. Cause I mean, I was used to like, oh, it was my birthday. You go on Sunday and everybody, we all oh, happy birthday. They bring me all these gifts and stuff like that. And like, now here I am like, alone in this church that I don't know with all these people and totally broken and angry. And I didn't know any, you know, I didn't know where to go or what to do or what I believed anymore. And, uh, it was just questioning all that. And that was kind of that moment where you're just like, do I even want to do this anymore? Do I want to go to church? Like, do I need to go to church? Like, I know all the stuff that I need to know. Like, what are these people going to teach me? Because, you know, I mean, I was a little arrogant to be honest about like these other churches, like, Oh, well, you know, here I am in my skirt and you guys are wearing pants. So, I mean, I'm, I'm more modest than you are. And I don't really listen to the kind of music that you guys listen to. And I don't, you know, just all these different things. And I still had that very, a little bit of pharisaical attitude, um, kind of thinking like, you can't teach me anything that I don't already know, <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. And, <laughs> um, I don't know that Gavin was like that as much as I was, but I was more of a goody two shoes than he was. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was hard. And so that December though, 
well, so we, we started looking for a church and my husband found a, a good church and, uh, I liked it right away. I really did, but, um, it wasn't home and I didn't know anybody there. We'd only been there a few weeks, you know? And so that December, uh, the pastor was doing for Christmas, he was doing this study on the four portraits of Christ. He was using each gospel to kind of show who Jesus is. And, um, December 19th, which was the Sunday before Christmas, my dad died. And uh, he had COVID in Michigan during 2020. So, uh, or whatever year that was, I don't remember now. But anyway, you remember how it was up there and, oh, how, yeah. how, and how the hospitals were and how they, mm-hmm. wouldn't let, they wouldn't let him have treatment. They put him on the ventilator. He wouldn't, ref- he refused the ventilator. Um, it was, it was all kinds of stuff. But anyway, it was very sudden. Like he was 61-ish years old. I think he was 61. Anyway, he wasn't that old. Uh, he had just retired from a 25-year like career in the the police force he was a detective all these things but anyway he uh he and i had stayed in touch and i'd never rocked the boat with him again even as an adult married woman i just kept a gray rock type relationship with him you know what i'm saying like i Mm -hmm. didn't you know i i let the conversations i let him lead conversations i but i never was vulnerable with him again um but uh yeah all of a sudden he just he, went, he got sick with COVID and he was fine. And he called me, which had been the first time in months that I'd talked to him. And he was like, Oh, you know, happy Thanksgiving, by the way, I've got COVID or something like that, you know? And then I was, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, we didn't think too much of it. And then suddenly it was like, you know, I heard, saw on Facebook, Oh, you know, my, you know, one of my aunts posted that he'd been rushed to the hospital. And I was like, what? <laughs> and their communication wasn't a great part of our family. So yeah. we were, you know, we began to be, as you can probably guess. <laughs> so it was like, oh, okay. And so, you know, we're, we're like, well, let's get a hold of dad and find out. And meanwhile, my dad had just been remarried. And so there was all this stuff. We'd never met this new stepmom or new wife of his. They'd only been married for like 10 or 11 months at the time. And uh, she also had COVID. And so, or anyway, long story short, my dad's new wife had a autistic daughter who was right across the hall from my dad, who also died of COVID two days before my dad. Oh and then my, goodness. And my dad died two days later. And uh, there was very little communication about all of it. Like we, it was very sudden. And I really had, once again, nobody to lean on, nobody to talk to about it, nobody to say, hey, can you help me out? I mean, nothing. And I had lost my grandpa um, just a couple of months before that. Um, and that was while we were still at that IFB church. And when I was at that IFB church, nobody said a word to me about the loss of my grandfather. Uh, they just, they were, like I said, they were shunning us at the time. So they were trying really hard to like pretend we weren't there, but, uh, his death, leave the IS, grandpa's death, leave the IFB dad's death. And I was just, it was a rock bottom for me. I, I didn't, it's like, I lost God and then I lost my dad and I didn't know, like, I don't know. It was, it was kind of. It was just really hard. And uh, um, all the identity and stuff, like I said, I didn't realize how much of it was still wrapped up in my performance in the IFB, um, in my roles that I played as singer, pianist, um, teacher, Um, of course, wife and mom, but so many other external roles that I had played were gone uh, and nobody could see me anymore. So who am I when I'm not performing? Does it matter? You know, and I just, I, there were so many things. And it's like, then, then all of the trauma from dad came up because when he died, everything came out, everything that had been repressed and so much more, uh, things that we had never even dreamed that he was into, he was into, um, oh, man. uh, just a complete double life. Um, he was 
he was just into really vile things. And um, we were just, we were both shocked and not shocked. <laughs> so um, it was a really hard time. And of course, his wife decided to take a lot of that anger out on us kids, my brothers and I, because I don't know. I don't even know why. I really don't. But she made it his death miserable on all of us. Uh, like she was the grieving widow and nobody else was allowed to be sad. Nobody else was allowed to talk. We weren't, the family turned uh, on us because us kids were like shocked at my dad's sins that were uncovered on his death, the things that were on his computer, the relationships he was in, uh, the secret life he was leading all across the country when he said he was going to classes. He was actually meeting up with clubs um, and doing terrible things. But we, when all of that came out, it was just like, we were all just shocked and we wanted help and we wanted to process it. And they were like, shh, be quiet. You know, don't say anything. Don't talk about it. Honor your father. Honor your father. He's gone now. Just honor him. Honor the family. And it's like, so all these aunts and my grandmother, they're like, don't say anything. You know, grandma found out because of something, you know, in a, something ambiguous I'd said on Facebook about it. And they were like, and she's going to die. And she's having a heart attack episode. And she's in the hospital all because you said something. And you should keep that quiet between you and the Lord or maybe you and a trusted counselor. And that's it. Like, don't ever talk about these things. So once again, even in death, my dad had this control. And I was like, once again, I was being asked to protect his reputation in a way he never deserved. I protected him his whole life, my whole life. And again, even in death, you know, as I'm being hurt from his death, it was like I had to mourn, like, not only did he die, and I'm going to miss my dad, but I had to realize that the dream that I liked to pretend I was in was never real. And the love that I thought that I was getting from him was never real. And that I had to grieve, not just that he was gone, but that he was a fake and a liar. And that he put all of that on pressure on me when he never did any of that for himself. And it was just, it was, it was a lot. And I think I finally began to wake up the, the back to the sermons on December 19th, the day that he died. Um, he was in the hospital. I knew he was dying that day. And um, I still went to church because that's what good girls do. <laughs> but um, uh, I still went to church and the pastor, I'm glad I did though. Um, because he prayed, I don't know what the sermon was about, because I kept watching my phone for that last phone call, because I was supposed to get to FaceTime my dad. And um, he prayed during his prayer, he said, let us put aside all other portraits or pictures, because the fullness of God is Jesus Christ. And you may have, you know, because he was talking about how sometimes we use a parent or a father figure as a picture of who God is. And sometimes we use the church and a church should be a picture of who God is, but we don't need these pictures anymore when we have Jesus Christ. And I was like, I realized like, yeah, my dad, I had projected onto God, my father. Hmm. And um, I had painted a picture of who God was based very much on who dad was. And uh, like I had to earn God's approval. I had to be the good little girl. I had to be um, sweet and effervescent and do all the things right and never step a toe out of line because I didn't want to upset God. Right. And that was the same mentality I had towards my dad and the same mentality that I had towards my dad of like, I don't want to inconvenience him or ask for food or ask for a doctor's appointment or school supplies or any of the things that I needed because dad would get really angry if I needed anything. Uh, he didn't want to provide stuff. And so like, it was kind of the same thing. It's like, 
I, but I was also expected to be very grateful all the time. You know, thank you, dad, for the food. Thank you for sending me to school. Thank you for the ride or whatever it was. I always, always was being thankful all the time. I had to be thankful. And so it was like that with God too. I was, I was like, well, thank you God for all the things. Thank you for my Christian home. Thank you for my health. Thank you for all these things. And it's like, but I could never ask God like for anything for me. I could ask things for other people. I could pray for other people, but I never prayed for me because I didn't want to, I don't know, inconvenience God or show that vulnerability to God. And I think I was projecting a lot of that onto him. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for the church. A lot of the things that the church expected of me, I thought God expected of me. I just, I had a very warped picture of who God was. And I had to take, it had to take losing the church and losing dad to realize that that was a warped picture. And I was able to, at that point, kind of begin putting the pieces back together and like that, like I said, reconstructing, started to look at all of the things that I was thinking about God wrong. And it was a very humbling experience to be at rock bottom, to be experiencing the anxiety again, um, the thoughts of self-harm, uh, just all of that all over again. Like, I'm like, what is this? I, I haven't been this person in years. Why is it all coming back? And um, I just, I didn't understand. And I was so broken and I, I'd lost all joy. I couldn't even put the face back on. I couldn't even pretend. I mean, I'd pretended for years and all of a sudden I couldn't even put my mask on. I couldn't even smile for people. Um, I was bitter and angry and I cried all the time. And at the same time, I couldn't shut up <laughs> I was like, because I was done with the mask. Yeah. I couldn't, I, I literally lacked the strength to put my mask on anymore and shi- be a shiny, happy person. I couldn't do it. And so uh, God had brought me or I was brought so low and humbled so much through all of that, that I just, I would sit in like our small groups and stuff and I would just share ugly stuff about how I felt about what was done to me about just all of it. I just let it all out. And for the first time in my life, they accepted me. They listened. They didn't judge me for it. They they were like, they the, the one person said to me, well, that's what the body of Christ is for. We're supposed to bear one another burdens. And I'm like, that's not what the body of Christ has been for me. Yeah. Mm. And I was, I was shocked because I was like, that's not what the body of Christ has done in my past. And I was just shocked that, that, that there was a place where people cared about what I had to say. And a sweet friend um, kind of, took me in and she came to my house and she would um, do Bible study with me once a week. And we would, I would just spill it all out on her. (laughs) And then um, when I got really low and did some, a little bit of self, a little bit of just like kind of like would scratch at myself, like really hard. Like I'd hold myself and then I would just like grab my nails through my skin and stuff. And I got to that point and I was like, you know what? I've got to the point where I'm acting on some of this stuff now. And I do not want my children to see that. I don't want them to see marks. I don't want them to know that I'm having this, these episodes. Um, and I reached out to some, a counselor at the church and a lady there who was a, um, she, she, again, just let me just dump all of it out, you know, from the beginning to the end. And I just, for the first time was getting full validation that everything was wrong. I didn't know I'd never, I'd repressed it all. And so like, I finally just dumped it all out and she began to like, that was the first step to healing for me was dumping it all out there. And I wasn't safe to do that until after I left the church and after dad died, that's when I finally gave myself permission to dump it all out um, because I didn't think I was safe to do so until then, even as a married person, adult with out of those situations. Um, what's, what's crazy to me too, is like, cause like, obviously it's not like a vindictive thing, right? Like I don't want to, I'm not here to tear down people's reputation, but the idea really is like sometimes talking about it, and just being honest about about it 
can help. Um, you know, and it's like uh, Brian and I were talking about this actually before the show. Like, there's a difference between like I'm sharing my story to be vindictive, or I'd have to dump this out to be vindictive toward others. Um, and I need to get this off my chest because I need to heal and I need to figure out how I'm supposed to move past this. And yeah. then there's also that idea of like, and then obviously your dad lived a double life and he never repented. Like, you know, the, I, I always can't help but wonder, like my mom and I have had a very estranged relationship for years now. And if I had seen her, re now she has early on stage dementia, so she's not even the same person. Um, but it's like, what if I had saw repentance at some point, how much have, would have changed, you know? So, and so those are some of those things you have to start processing. Like, cause if I think it'd be very different too, if you saw that person repent, come to you and just go, I am sorry, forgive me. And then oh, that would, yeah. that alone would bring a lot of healing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I think it's important that, you know, people are understanding you here too. Cause you're like, that's the first time I'm finally saying, hearing this stuff is wrong. It was wrong of me, but it's not like a vindictive, bitterness that you're speaking with. It's just a straight fact that this was wrong. And this is how we heal is by being open and honest about our struggles I mean, and the things I that never, we've been through. I never meant to be better. I don't, I hope I wasn't better. And I hope that's not my testimony because I don't want to share this stuff in the sense of gossip. But it's part of the reason I kept it silent for so long is I didn't want to be a fault finder. You have not, you have not come off bitter this entire <laughs> no. time. It's actually been like a very, no, no, you're doing, you're doing great. <laughs> So, I mean, that's one of the things, like, uh, on a few occasions, there have been a few people I've shared with. And that was something I had to learn, was as I finally began to, like, spill the story, I had to learn that not everybody deserves my story. Not mm -hmm. everybody not everybody is safe to sh trust my heart with. And uh, because at that weak and vulnerable point in my life, I didn't have, I just spilled it out to anybody who was willing to listen, right? And I would just trauma dump, I guess, <laughs> is the term. And so I just did. And I finally I would begin to see like, hey, not everybody is willing to hear that. Some people don't want to know. They'd rather live their pretty lie. Um, some people don't like to hurt, don't like hurting people because hurting people make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And I had, to, I had to learn that. And that was a hard truth for me to learn too, was like, when I finally did start being vulnerable with people, oh, not everybody, not everybody is as kind as the group of people I was with. And some people did tell me, oh, you're just bitter. You're just angry. You're just, you know, you're a fault finder and all the things they would say. You're negative. Um, you know, and I, I would just be like, you know what? I've had enough of that. So I'm going to go find somebody new to talk to. <laughs> and so <laughs> I finally, I finally got to that point. I'm like, okay, there are good people out there that are willing to listen and help me heal. And um, I began that process. And um, pastor, another thing, you know, like I said, as somebody who struggled with anxiety severely for a long time, um, one of the things that he had talked about right at our coming was, believe it or not, our first uh, first Sunday there was the beginning of their financial, like, two-year financial initiative they were doing. So what a Sunday to be a brand-new visitor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Give us your money. <laughs> yeah. Gavin and I are both sitting there, like, triggered, right? <laughs> but no, he did such a good job with it, though, that it wasn't about the money. And he took a more of a – he took a stance of, like, owners and managers and that we are God is the owner of all things and that we are the manager or steward of all things and so including finances, but also our, our children, our lives. I mean, it's all things. And I, I, one of the statements that he made that was really life-changing for me was he was talking about like when we usurp God's position as as owner and take that for ourselves to try to control what was never mine to control, that it will lead to a life of anxiety and anger and frustration and I was just like, oh, my goodness, you just described my life. I am often 
angry and frustrated because the things that I was told were mine to control, like my children, my body, I mean, all these different things. It's like, sometimes they're out of my control. And when they're out of my control, what do I do? And, and so that was, um, that would lead me to more of those emotional outbursts and that anxiety trying to force my children to perform the way that I thought they were supposed to perform in order to make me look good. Right. (laughs) And all the things, and I was putting too much pressure on myself and them, um, and releasing that and putting that back in alignment, like this belongs to God. These are his kids, you know, not, not mine. And it's not mine to control, you know, or my health or all these different things. And I realized like just all of that really helped me so much to release that anxiety and to put all that time that I wanted somebody to love me and I wanted somebody to protect me and I wanted somebody to make decisions for me and care about me. And I finally realized I was looking in all the wrong places because it was God and I was having all these God substitutes, the church, my father, my husband, and it was God the whole time going, hello, it's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, learning to rest in him instead of trying to, um, I had this mentality of salvation too, where it was, well, salvation, like there's justification and sanctification. And I kind of looked at justification as God's job, but sanctification is mine. And again, learning to rest in him and recognizing that that sanctification is a joint work between the God and me um, was a big learning thing. And I talk about being humbled, like I began to realize how much I had wrong, how much I didn't know. And I just began to learn and grow. And God just really began to heal um, my, my, my mind, my heart, and the things that um, I had been through. I was able to finally like see God for the good God that he was, is, you know, um, I was doing that Bible study. And one of the things that we did was, you know, we did a study on who, who does God say that I am? That was huge because if you'd just asked me, who does God say that I am? I would have said, wicked, vile, dirty rags, a sinner, unworthy, a worm, right? This is what I thought I was. And then, mm-hmm. um, but I read the verses and God said I was chosen. God said I was loved. God said that I was, you know, I mean, all these different things. And I was like, that's not who I thought I was to God. And I began to see like, the second part of the study I did was um, I went through and like, who is God? And I would have said, God is just, and uh, just God is big, God is holy, God is righteous. But what I saw was that God is good and God is kind. Kindness is not a word I would have attributed for God. And uh, seeing that God is kind, I mean, yes, we talked about his mercy all the time, but I didn't see mercy in the God that I knew. And I've got to know God in a new way. That well, God mercy is- mercy in that context is that to be thankful God didn't squish you this morning yeah. because of your yeah. wicked wormness. Right. <laughs> you know, your depravity, <laughs> like you're, you you got to live another day without being burned. That's mercy. So the, yeah. the con- context shifts a little bit. That good old Protestant theology there. Yeah, that's a downside with some of those theology because it, it – it, and in, in its attempt to to make sure that you feel responsible for your sin, it, it actually erodes the your imageness of God in you, and that you actually have intrinsic worth and value. Yeah, the fact that you are as a human being worth dying for, like that's the message of Jesus Christ: that you are worth dying for. There's yeah. value in you. Right, um, and that was one of the things that I learned afresh and new. I mean, it's not that the IFB didn't teach that, but they didn't. The emphasis is wildly different. (laughs) And so it was just another thing, like a baseline, a foundational aspect of my faith that I had 
I had to relearn was um, identity in, in the creator and not in my performance or in what I do or my sanctification or any of these things. It's like, I am valuable because of who made me. I'm valuable because of who the creator is, not because of who my dad is, not because of what I've done, not because of my position or my talents or my anything, and not because of who I married or, or how well-behaved my kids are. And these are things that I was looking for value in. Um, right. And I finally saw that I'm just valuable being just me, just because I was literally born here on this earth, created. I am valuable just because of that. And I'm worth loving just because of that, not because mm -hmm. of anything else. And I, that was the first time I'd ever really thought of that. I don't know. I know that probably seems awesome. weird, but no, it it's, not. <laughs> it's not. It's not weird at all because it's so. It's like the obvious forest for the trees situation. Yeah. Um, when there's so much other things going on around you, so now, so you took. I mean, obviously you've healed the last couple of years, and just to kind of help wrap this up and land the plane for a minute, um, if someone is going through something similar to you, what is like your number one advice that you would give? to um, heal from spiritual trauma because that's what that is <laughs> i would say find a trusted friend or two that you can um walk alongside you while you s learn these things and unlearn other things um but i i don't mean to keep like tooting you guys' horn but like seriously like the church split was really helpful because um one of the things that i needed so badly was the safety net of exploring the questions that I had. Um, so being told through your resources that it was okay to have a different point of view than what I was always told, to being told that it was okay to have, like there are Christians who have these different views um, and like me rejecting something didn't make me an apostate, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like right. if, I no, yeah. if I no longer wanted to believe in like the rapture uh, or if you had a different view of is it is it eternal conscious torment or is it something else it's like if you could have slightly different views and not be walking away from the faith mm -hmm. um and i understand we can talk about those things and different people have but that was really important to me because i really didn't think that it was safe or okay to question those things i thought those were the foundations the fundamentals of my faith and being being um given a resource where i could see fellowship with believers who still practiced and walked their faith and lived their faith, but also had differences of opinion um, was really valuable to me. Um, and then finding somebody that I could share that with and work those things through um, as I had my questions um, was really, really helpful. Everybody says, oh, just get in the word. Um, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Um, just read your Bible and pray and God will you know, reveal all things. It, it, that was not helpful. That wasn't helpful because honestly, the Bible, reading the Bible was, um, was like reopening all of that spiritual trauma, you know? Like, right. Well, because you don't have a new lens, right? Because right. uh, Brian and I talk about this all the time. But we read our lenses into scripture all the time. Exactly. If you're, if you're raised as a reformed covenant theologian Calvinist, you're going to read that continually into the text as your lens. If right. you raise an IFB background with Charles Ryrie dispensationalism and legalism, you're going to read that into your text. Yeah. Yes. So you need a, almost a reteaching moment of like, hey, let me help give you some new lenses for yes, a minute. And that's what those two teachers were for me. My, my sweet friend who came to my house for Bible study every 
um, every week and she would come to see me and spend like two hours just sitting at my kitchen table, working through the Bible with me, teaching me how to read my Bible. I hated reading my Bible. I did. I really, at that point in time, I wasn't reading it at all. Really. I, I just, I would read like a verse a day because I had to check that box. Right. But like I would read my verse a day, but that was it because anything else was too much for me. Um, but she helped me start reading. She was okay with me reading a verse a day or two or three. Um, she didn't push me to do anything more than that. And um, she let me do that. And she would let me be angry about what I read. And she would let me talk about like, I don't like that God said it this way because this is how people used it on me. And she would go, she would usually be horrified and be like, oh my goodness, that's not what that means. And she would tell me, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, she, but she let me be angry and she let me say it. And then she would show me a new lens and I would be like, oh, okay, well, I guess the Bible's not wrong. <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, that makes more sense, actually. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes someone just saying, hey, you just read that with a lens you didn't intend to, and then you right. go, wait, I did? I so, thought I was unbiasedly reading that part of Scripture. No, I just let the Bible speak for itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly, I just let the Bible speak for itself. Just let the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. guide you, and I'm like, that's not that's not enough. And, and I needed some other lenses. And one of the things that helped me was um, when I put away my King James, um, which I still... I have hundreds and hundreds of verses memorized in King James, but it'll always be with me. And I will always love my King James Bible, but I don't read it anymore. Um, and that's one of the reasons I stopped was um, I noticed that the King James particularly held with it a lot of that old lens. And so I had to get a, a more dynamic translation that helped me a lot uh, because um, it just, it helped me to see the message a little bit better, a little more clearly. So that helped. Um, and then also when I was struggling uh, to even read my Bible because I didn't want to, and I didn't like to, and it was hurtful, I would listen to my Bible. So I got onto audio. Now for a long time, I told myself that listening to the Bible doesn't count. It's not, <laughs> it's not reading the Bible. It's not having devotions. So I had this mental image of what devotions should look like, you know, I should. Meanwhile, it's how most people did it in the first century was <laughs> yeah. someone would read it, but yeah. Right. But I, mean, I, I just had this performance in my mind that like, oh, you know, a godly woman, a good wife and mother would get up before their children rise. So I need to be up at like 6am. I need to get my tea. I need to sit by a window. It has to be quiet. You know, it's a, and I would sit with my journal and I would I would read like you know 30 minutes of scripture and journal and pray and and the thing the truth was is that never happened because I never had that kind of time I got three kids and that just never happened and I was always feeling guilty <laughs> literally what my wife does by the way is that very thing it's like her doubt is so funny I have anyway keep going that's really good for, I mean, good for her I mean she that was found the my, time that it's was just... my daydream I, <laughs> I, I used to do it when I didn't have kids um I could do that but like by the time my first one came, she didn't sleep at all ever. And so I was so sleep deprived. I couldn't do that anymore. And <laughs> oh, anyway. yeah, for sure. No, it's just one of those things where I even yeah. tell my wife, like, you're crazy. Like, I, if I, if you try to get me to read my, I'm a theology nerd. You try to get me to read the Bible that early, I'd fall asleep. <laughs> well, yeah. And then there's guilt for that too. But yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> But, but that's how they painted the picture of the godly wife and mother at all the women's mm -hmm. conferences. And so they would talk about their whatever, at the sunrise and the birds and I mean, whatever. But like, <laughs> I, I thought that was who I was supposed to be. And so I would try, but I was always failing and always feeling shame for failing. So learning that it was okay to listen to my Bible was amazing. And learning that it was okay on occasion to just to put in a podcast devotional and listen to that and let other people listen to other people's stories and testimonies and then pray about that and ask God about that. Why, why did you, where were you? And I, I, I got comfortable with asking God, where were you? What were you doing, God? 
how I thought that you, I thought that you loved me and were putting me in a Christian home, but you, this wasn't a Christian home and you weren't loving me. You know, you, know, you weren't there, <laughs> you know, how come you didn't rescue me? How come you didn't help me? How can you, and I had to find answers to all those questions. And um, they were hard questions to ask uh, God, but he's, he let me ask him. He didn't squish me. <laughs> right? yeah. Well, it's like, that's Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the entire book is like up. Habakkuk yeah. being like, well, God, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, that's literally the book that my, uh, my friend who came to Bible study had me start in was Habakkuk. And I was so mad because like every week she would come and I would be like, this book is making me mad because there's no answer. <laughs> God never answers. It's like, here's an injustice, here's an injustice, here's something else that went wrong. And every time is, where are you? Where are you? How long? How long? And God never answers. And that was really hard for me. Um, I don't know exactly what the answer is as to when and how I got peace about that. Sometimes it still makes me mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where, that's where the problem of evil is something that the uh, problem of evil and suffering is something Christians have to be able to respond to, which we still have like a nine-week series on here. I, did, everyone can I think listen I to. listened to most of that one because Gavin and I went through that together because uh, that was something that he would help me work through as I was struggling with that because he was had, had a lot more peace about it than I did. I do plan to go oh, oh, do better produce videos of that in the future, but <laughs> I do concur with you about having a friend that you can kind of confide in and also explore things with. Many people know this, but that's what kind of what the Brian and Will Bro Squad has been for each other in many ways. It's yeah. like, hey man, this is what I'm going through. I'm gonna just be real with you. And we, I mean, I, I always joke around. Like people think sometimes we're like really, really like p savage or punchy with the people online, or sometimes they're like, wow, you know, you guys' tone. I'm like, you think this is bad? You see the way oh, Brian yeah. and I go at it, each other. Like, if we disagree, it's an apocalyptic event. <laughs> yeah. It's, but it's like we, it's that, it's that friend that's able to challenge you. It's also that friend that is willing to walk alongside you as you're learning something, as you're going through a trial. These things are so mm -hmm. important to have. So I agree with you that that is like one of the most vital things someone can have is having a friend that is willing to do that. Yeah. Um, I was, so go, go out there and find one. Absolutely blessed to have my husband though, because he was that friend for me. Um, mm -hmm. But I needed a little bit more. I It wasn't enough to have a husband who was walking alongside me and exploring all of that with me. I needed, um, I guess I just needed the, a woman to walk with me too. Well, you need, yeah. yeah. So. Well, there's different relationships, right? Like my wife is that person. Of course, she's my, she's my closest friend. My wife is the best, but at the same time, it's not the same relationship as I'm going to have with a friend of mine who is a man who is going to have similar traits to me that is going to help me think these. Uh, we need different relationships. This can't just be you and your spouse. It's, right. We're supposed to live in fellowship with each other and the body. So I, I love that advice. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, everyone needs to find those friends. So before we wrap up here, is there anything uh, you wanted to say, Brian or, or Julie, real quick? I just want to say thank you for sharing this, your story. I think, you know, like you said, listening to some podcasts and hearing other people tell their stories was one of the things that helped you resonate and and identify what you had actually gone through and able, be able to label it. And I hope others, when they watch this, they have the same response. If they've been through something similar, they can actually identify, oh, what happened to me wasn't okay. And it doesn't mean that Christianity is bad. It means there were some bad Christians. Right. You know, I think uh, Daniel Apologetics, I think, had it where he said, just because you see a, a lot of bad Elvis impersonators doesn't mean that Elvis doesn't exist, <laughs> um, which I think is just a great analogy for Christians. And there's, we're trying to be Christ-like, and a lot of us fail. And some fail and are not Christ-like at all. And that can be really traumatic. But 
don't let that tear you away and not let you reconstruct. Remove the bad, remove your lens, try a different lens, have a good friend that can help you with that, and then build back up with scripture and with people that are actually walking with Christ. And to touch real quick on that, what the coolest part about that is when you do that, you're rebuilding and all that. And yeah, maybe some of these people were bad Christians, bad people. But what's also amazing is sometimes how those people come back around. Since I started the church split, since I've been doing this public ministry, there's so many people who have been like, hey, man, I was wrong back then. I am sorry. Like, I did not realize. And I'm like, dude, same. Like, I've hurt people. Like, I've done foolish things because of the bad things I was taught. So mm-hmm. I, it's one of those cool things, too, that when you start being honest about it, people are comfortable with being honest with you. Like, maybe somebody who didn't you didn't like at all back in the day came back around. I, I, I have some crazy stories but to tell on that if I wanted to. I, I probably shouldn't tell their stories, but there's some people who definitely did some bad things. And they came out and was like, Will, thank you so much uh, for just being open on it. You helped me be open about it. And I realized how horrible a person I've been. been. And it's just really cool when you see God working in our lives, because God's convicted me, shown me a lot of my wrongs, same mm-hmm. with you and same with you, but at the same time, showing you your worth and your value, and that you can't, that sin is crouching at the door, but we can rule over it. And that also my value is being an image bearer of God, nothing else. Um, So I really appreciate that, Julie. Do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? I did think of two more things that I, advices, but I'll be quick. Um, One was uh, I learned to apologize. You said that. And that was something I had to learn to tell, to humble myself to my kids, to my husband very often and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I spoke in anger. I went too far. Um, And that was a constant like, Confession was incredible for me because uh, it was constantly humbling myself and realigning myself and submitting myself to God um, and my need for him. And I think it was something I was missing before, um, before I thought that I just had to do the right things and then that would be, I was good, right? Um, But I think confession really helped put me back in alignment with God. And then the other thing that has helped me dramatically was, is, um, and I have to do this still on a very regular basis is you talked about lenses and that's like when I'm in small groups or discussions with people, um, they'll say something that kind of like triggers an emotion or like a red flag for me. Um, and I'll just say, hold on. What do you mean when you say that? What do you mean by that? Because, and then I'll tell them, like, you know, they usually look at me like, well, I'm just pretty clear. And I'll be like, no, because in the past, when somebody said that, they meant this. And then I would sh- say that. And usually they'll look at me all like horrified, like, oh, no, that's not <laughs> what we, that's not what I'm saying. And I, but I need to do that because otherwise, that's one of those things like, I would run away from situations all the time if I didn't do that, because I would look at people and go, oh, red flag, run away, right? You know, you're a bad guy, or you're just like the IFB, or you're just like that pastor or that man or that boyfriend or that father of mine that hurt me, and I would run away. But the fact is, is all of those people were using scripture, but they were using it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I hear people use the same scriptures, but they mean it a different way, I get triggered by that still, and I'm like, oh, you're bad you know, I don't want to listen to you anymore. And so I have to give people grace and I have to wait and kind of, I had to learn to speak or to sit with my negative emotion enough to speak up for myself and say, excuse me, what do you mean by that? I'm not, I'm not trying to be aggressive or, um, you know, confrontational, but I had to learn to be confrontational. That was hard for me. Uh, and it's scary for me to say to somebody, what do you mean when you say that? Because it sounds a lot like you're asking me to do this or to do that. And usually I've been very pleased with the answers and um, as I've given people the grace to speak for themselves, uh, when I actually speak up and ask them, they usually have valid reasons for what they're saying and they don't mean (laughs) the horrible things that I think they mean. So that's nice. (laughs) 
I, this is why uh, you should read the book Tactics by Greg Kalkel. Goes through all that stuff. It's really helpful for <laughs> it to navigate difficult conversations. So that's that's really good advice. Yeah. I really appreciate that. So, um, but yeah, well, um, Julie, I really appreciate you coming on. This is one of those like interviews I was actually really looking forward to because I yeah. know that you've been through so much, and I was and I know there's so many people that can be encouraged by your story. Um, and so I just really hope that it can serve as a springboard because I know you mentioned like Preacher Boys at that, at that podcast. And it's unfortunate that that's become like a place where people were who deconstructed and then stay deconstructed and reconstructed in faith. And so that's what's happening a lot of times over there. So it's like, well, there is an answer too for you to stay Christian and still confront those things and realize that those are, yeah, those are bad, but that doesn't mean Christianity is false. So um, I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, yeah. In fact, Brian got us both Jesus Christ, Jesus is risen, changed my mind t-shirts. <laughs> so you can still be Christian and confront those things. Um, this is like the most go hard Jesus shirt I Heck think yeah. I own now. Uh, so, uh, and I shall wear it proudly. Um, but anyway, Julie, I really appreciate you coming on, just yeah, being definitely. open and vulnerable with everyone. Um, it's not easy. People, I'm not sure if they don't realize how e hard it can be just as I just kind of come out and say it all publicly um, on a platform. So I appreciate you doing that, especially if you're not used to doing this. But honestly, for someone who's never really podcasted before, you did great. She's way better than us. She was way better than <laughs> us our first time. Oh, so um, I... Uh, jealous but that's okay um but anyway guys uh thank you so much for tuning into the church split um and if you want join us in the church split uh apologetics and discussion page on facebook um and you can interact with everyone there we'd have, love to chat with you uh don't forget to like and subscribe take care and god bless And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this. We gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. Yes, I did. Yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month in advance. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.